Hey, before I kick off the podcast, I just want to shout out Nextdoor Clothing. Nextdoor, uh, a clothing brand based out of Bondi in Sydney. They're making really nice jeans and shirts and hats. So go and check out their full range at nextdoorsydney.com. They're also artists, so you can go and check out a range of art. They put on rad parties, and I love what they're doing. So nextdoorsydney.com for the full range. Hey, it's Shan here. This week, I speak with Ty Colling. Ty is from the eastern suburbs of Sydney, Australia. He has had an awesome life growing up in the Bondi area, skateboarding in that area since the 80s. And he shares his life story quite openly and honestly. But just as a bit of a disclaimer, we do talk a lot about skateboarding in this episode because Ty's life has been so intertwined with the activity that he loves so much. Ty shares about his early days working in a surf slash skate shop in the Bondi area and then how that then took him on a trajectory towards working in the skate industry in various ways from his early days of being sponsored by streetwear clothing company Juice Clothing with founder Guy Miller and helping with the production of their videos and the design of some of their clothes, including mesh shorts back in the 90s, those fresh mesh shorts. He also then has gone on to work for distribution company Black Box Distribution, which was the company established by Jamie Thomas in America and nowadays he works for Hardcore Distribution which is one of the original Australian distribution companies and he has his own skate coaching business called Flow Skate which is really epic and in terms of experience and knowledge Ty is just a wealth of information he he's seen both sides of the sport, like the, you know, the, being the skate side and then seeing the other side of the industry and, you know, I guess in some ways achieve what many people, you know, have wanted to achieve and that is to, you know, work work in the industry and, and, and sustain a living that way. He's always been a really humble and kind guy and he is just the same as what he was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. He he loves skating. Like we went skating for the day and he just he just wouldn't stop. Like we skated for like three or four hours and then he still wanted to get a few slappies in on the curb and we um, put a little edit together so you can check that out on the socials and you'll see like the guy's in his late 40s and still ripping, still progressing, still trying to learn new tricks. And it made me sort of think like is, is skateboarding the fountain of youth? But then I'm like, well, I think when you have a passion for something, like that's your fountain of youth. And I think it's such a gift to to find these things. So you can never stop looking for them or finding them. And I think Ty is a real example of living with passion. And that's why I loved having him on. And it was just great to spend some time with him because uh, I guess we were friends back in the day too. So enjoy my conversation with Mr. Ty Coling, everyone. Cheers. Hey, 
funny. <laughs> you know what's funny? These mics might have COVID in them in the phone, you know. That's why. They've That's recorded so all through COVID <laughs> legally during lockdowns. Oh I'm goodness. going public with it now. What are they going to do? <laughs> Find me. Well, not now. They're throwing all those fines out. <laughs> you know what? I want to hear about your life story. I do. But I'm actually like just sort of keen to get started. I want to talk about the skate industry a little bit because, you know, you have fast experience with the skate industry and things like that. You know, your involvement even back with Juice Clothing back in the day. You've seen the other side that most people don't see. Mm. Is it the toughest industry on earth to make a livable income? I'm not sure if it's the toughest industry to make a livable income, but I don't know. I'd say there's lots of industries that are hard to make an income in, but it's, uh, I don't know, I just fell into things (laughs) along the way, really. Like I tried, I got a job in a, you know, a little surf shop, really, that sold skateboards in my local shop. Which one was that? Um, Surfection at Bonai Junction. It was one of the first ones. They bought it off Vic Ford, the old surf shop guy, and um, where I got my first, you know, good skateboard, which was a cab. Um, was it? Cab full dragon, no Chinese way. dragon. There you go. From there. Um, but then, yeah, he sold to Surfection, Chris Athos at Surfection, who... um. Did some cool things along the way and built that massively. But that I think that was one of his first shops at the time. And, yeah, they just wanted... Their new skating was sort of going. And so they wanted a skate, you know, help buyer kind of thing. And so I did the skate buying in there for them. And then, and then that morphed into um, STM opened <coughs> up the road, which is... Um, Short for St. Moritz, which is Darren's parents' ski shop, which was around Bonner Junction for many years before that. Interesting. And um, and then, you know, Darren wanted to do the snowboard side of things because he was their son and, you know, in younger and um, obviously into surfing and snowboarding and skating and stuff. So he made STM because I think initials were happening at the time, you know. And so he opened the second store and then he wanted to have a, you know... A, a local, I guess, core skater around and somehow, I don't know, new people and I think actually Adam Luxford's girlfriend, Joey, was working there at the time and I'd had a relationship with Luxford for years or whatever. Was I getting boards off him by that stage? Control? Yeah, control. Yeah, I was. I was getting boards off him. So, I mean, you know, it was all, it was pretty small back then so everyone knew each other, obviously. As many people have said before, um, and so yeah, I used to hang out with them a bit, and Joey just sort of put it out there. I was like, "You want to come and work here?" And then yeah, that happened. And Darren was pretty forward thinking. Actually, he was always super supportive of the scene, which was awesome. And he wanted to have a skate clinic, basically, and and do something to sort of get skating happening i'm pretty sure it was sort of his idea and then somehow it came together with Waze, which is waverly action for youth services um they got um office well they had one actually upon a junction there and they had a vert ramp there years ago <laughs> yeah your face says a lot right there because it was a temporary setup no like it what? was <laughs> that's a funny whole story in itself 
So they had these offices at Bonner Junction, like in terrace houses and in the backyard, basically. And But it was like a youth centre. It was literally a youth centre place. But they wanted to incorporate skating. And this is like 89-ish, 88, 89, somewhere there. <clears throat> so they built a vert ramp in the back, which steel frame, steel surface, um, plywood underlay. It was possibly one of the most perfectly built vert ramps and best tranny and coping, but it had four feet of flat bottom. Oh, it's like a U-pipe. <laughs> pretty much. And it was it was pretty hectic. Up against a wall, <laughs> to add, had, a, had two roll-ins, one sort of like adjacent to each other. How high? Ten foot? Eleven, okay. probably ten and one, something like that. And it, like I say, the transition and vert and... Construction were second to none at the time, but it had four feet of flat bottom and you just had to deal with that. But I learned quite a lot on that ramp, funnily enough. And is this pre-Bondi vert ramp? Yes, just pre-Bondi vert ramp. Um, and it was, yeah, there was some amazing stuff. I saw Chris Holland and go there. Uh, he did McTwists on that ramp with Ollie Horns on, in fairness, because he was in that stage at the time. But, I mean, man, doing anything properly on that ramp was ultimately pretty hectic because with no flat bottom, it was mm. death and it was super fast. Uh, things were happening super quick on that thing. And so, anyway, Waze were trying to do stuff with skating over time and they also had a, um office or um, set up down in Bondi at the beach as well. And... Yeah, somehow it was a collaboration between STM and Waze and basically yeah, got Adam Luxford again to build a little teeny little mini street course kind of set up and what, uh, STM would pay me to go along and essentially be a coach slash mentor kind of thing at the time and, and then Waze would have their staff come along and have the youth centre kids sort of rock up and that was a mixture of skaters and just youth centre-like kids you know, taggers and different, just young kids yeah. around. Homeboys. <clears throat> yeah, a bit of everything sort of thing. Troubled kids, all, all sorts, you know, and they would come to the skate clinic. It was every second Saturday um, for like four years mm. pretty much. This is back and started back in 89, 90. Uh, no, no. Well, that, so then that that this was probably, no, this was years later. This would have been 97 okay. by this stage. Cause I, was at, I was at Surfaction from 95 to 97. And then I went to STM and, yeah, 97 is when, as soon as I started working there, Darren was like, I want to do this skate clinic thing. Right. And so that happened and then... So it was, one of the OG skate coaches, because really there wasn't many skate coaches back then. Not really. And, I mean, in fairness, it wasn't like super hardcore coaching. It was just skating with the kids and, you know, just sort of helping them here and there. It was just, it was for the youth centre kids and to be just someone there and I guess, you know, for lack of anything else to say like just inspirational just someone older who could relate to them because you're a skater and they're street kids and they want to skate and all of that side of things and so yeah it was cool did that for a bunch of years and it was fun paid, and paid that, gig yeah it was paid stm would pay me that was stm's contribution they probably paid for the street course for like of street course ways had the storage set up for that and you know we'd just go and rent a trailer from the service station and then drag it around and pull it out and 
and uh, yeah, run a rock up that ways would bring a barbecue down and cook up some sausage, sausage sangers and and uh, some, have some cordial and whatever for all the kids and everyone. And it went for two or three hours or however long it went for. And it was cool over that time because, you know, I was in the scene as such. I'm like, I got... I knew Dustin and got him to come along one time and skate Dustin with the Dolan. kids. Yeah, Dustin Dolan. Yeah, yeah. And so he skated and then I got along with Gershon Mosley as well oh, and, and he came along and skated with the kids. What and, happened to him? Um, A-team. He just, yeah, I don't know. He just sort of dropped out and, and did Gershon stuff, you know. I yeah. think um, he's a super deep person. Is he? Yeah, he's a very deep person. And Was yeah, he? I hung out with him a bit and talked to him and stuff. He was going out with a, a, a girl that I knew a local Bondi girl, and um, yeah, he was cool. But he was—he was funny. He—he he had his thing going on, and he's like, "I'll come along, but you know, I just—I don't really want the kids to ask me to sign things and stuff. They can talk to me about skating or whatever, but I don't really want to be full pro guy. I just want to—I want to skate, okay, and, and I'll be down with them. But I just don't want to be like you know, hero guy. I just want to skate with them and do stuff and." And it was cool. So, you know, I got different people along there and it was just a good a good vibe yeah. overall, you know. How old were you when you got that, that first, going back a little bit, how old were you when you got that first job at the surf shop? Or the skate 20, shop? 21, 22. Yeah. And you like were, that. where were you born and raised? Um, born in Paddington, oh, yeah. at the Women's Hospital, which is now a park, a Memorial yeah. Park. And then... <clears throat> Mostly, basically grew up around Woolara, my mum's place, but also at my dad's place, which is in Paddington, literally right around the corner from where I was born. Okay. Um, amazing place, that one. This old tobacco factory, um, which I've still got relics for <coughs> from here. Um, old tobacco packing boxes. Well, you found them in the house. Um, no, they just left everything in there. When he bought it, they closed the tobacco factory and they just left all the machinery and all these other bits and pieces that... Boxes yeah, no, over there. That, no way. Those wooden ones where you yeah. got the light in. Yeah. That's right. That looks sick. Yeah. I actually noticed that. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Ty, you're pretty good at decorating. <laughs> <laughs> Did they leave any free ciggies? <laughs> um, I don't know if there was any tobacco, but there were cool little, actual little tobacco boxes and pouches and stuff. It was oh, a bit Robin Hood and tobacco stuff? and stuff. Yeah, no little way. tins. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was interesting. I think he sold the machines to people who were interested in that kind of thing. Interesting. And then when he sold that, they converted into warehouse-style apartments, of course. But that was an amazing place to live. Like you literally stroll from one side of the building to the other, you know. It was like a big place. And you're, an East, you're a full eastern suburbs kid. For sure, for sure. You don't have that vibe, though. You're kind of down to earth. <laughs> eastern suburbs wasn't quite what it has turned into. It was a bit different back then. But it was funny. My other place, my mum's place in Wollara, was this other amazing house and when she'd bought it and had two tennis courts on there apparently and then by the time I'd grown up it, or, you know, gotten older and understanding what was going on, it was full jungle. She just turned it into a jungle and had okay. my friends over at, at school playing war games and Epic. stuff like that. Was, good yeah. memories? Yeah, yeah, it was great memories, definitely good good times back then. So, yeah, I grew up all around there. She eventually let me build a little mini ramp in the backyard, one and a half foot high, yeah. tiny, and that was just really good for footwork, really good for footwork. It was tiny and... People, lots of people came over and couldn't skate it. And what? Too, was it tight or no was, flat bottom again? Tight. No, it was tight, but it had flat bottom. Okay. One no. one iteration had a spine, like half of it, like oh. four foot wide spine with a 
parking block on one side and stuff. And I learned heaps of tricks on, mm. on that ramp. And, and this is in Wallara? This is in Wallara, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Like Bondi and the eastern suburbs, you know, let's, let's face it, it's probably the, one of the most affluent suburbs in the country. However, describe Bondi in the early 90s when it was like the full Scum Valley vibe. Well, I go back further than that into the eighties. That's good. And, and yeah, it was pretty sketchy. Like the first half pipe I skated was down in um, defunct service station, basically, which is in the on on um, Campbell Parade, right in right where now I think it's the Pacific Building, and it turned into the Ramada or Grant something or other. And Swiss Grand. Swiss Grand, yeah, Swiss Grand, that's right, good work. Which had some yeah. good ledges out the front, which we skated uh, a lot yeah. back in the day. Um, but before all that, yeah, there was Housing Commission flats behind that, and then there's defunct service station. And uh, the locals built a half pipe in there, which was like four foot on one side, and like seven or eight foot on the other side, and eight foot wide or something <laughs> or other. And um, it was pretty sketchy down there. and and like taggers used to hang hang out then and that was fully the time when you had to be looking over your shoulder for taggers they didn't like skateboarders but thankfully i kind of knew a couple of the the local ones and i was tiny you know i didn't grow till i was like 16 17 right. something or other and and it was pretty like oh gotta look out for what's going on around here but everyone used to hang out down there like pauline Mensah, who was um yeah world, world champ surfer yeah. yeah she used to skate down there with everyone and there was a whole bunch of crew and that's where I first saw Chris Holland, who was my first local influence, just going, oh, my goodness, this dude can skate. You Would know? you regard him as your major early influence? For to, sure. To get you right into skateboarding? 100%. What was it about him that drew you to him? He was just good? Just good. Super, you could just tell. Because other guys were like surfer guys, a bit surf style, you know, and all that. And they could do some stuff. But Chris, I remember, was doing like indie nose picks on the ramp and like he'd rock to fakie on the small side and then do fakie ollies on the big side and he just was really together, like had skate style, yeah. you know, but he surfed as well. Um, but, yeah, that ramp, that was the first ramp I dropped in on, like first half pipe that I dropped in on. I remember going off the side first time and I kind of handled and then just started there basically. I mean, I think I had quarter pipes before that or something or other. Um, but then they knocked that one down and built like about a six-foot, overall ramp which was maybe four panels wide so maybe 16 feet wide and they basically went to vert or something like that and i remember seeing chris trying to twist on that and like getting really close and he was i started trying them on there because of him and i couldn't do anything like basically did you ever have a mctwist in your repertoire no unfortunately because i know what you did have in your repertoire i'll never forget you had like Heel flip cabalarial indie grabs, didn't you? Yeah, I did several Back, of those. But that was didn't like in wide. the 90s, like that was such a tech vert trick. It was. I was stoked. I would say that's probably the you know best or whatever most technical trick that I've kind of ever done, so I would sick. say. Certainly didn't have it wired, but I whacked out a few of them. Do you remember your first happy. one you ever made? Oh, yeah, How very well. The, describe that day where you just. Uh, I'd try, I'd been it? trying it for years, you know. Like I learned kickflip indies first. Um, for, yeah, just doing them for a little while. Didn't have them fully sussed, but then I think, yeah, obviously Danny did it first, Danny Way, that is. And um, I don't know why I started trying them, but I did. I literally was trying them probably since 93, I would say, and then I'm pretty sure it was 96 when I finally made it. I'd been trying it a lot. 
And then I was at Tarrant Point uh, Vertex one night with my mate uh, Snake, Shadon Colster. And sectile. Sectile, indeed. Yeah. Len Taylor, of course. Just saw his board on the wall. And, um, and Aaron Brown was out there taking photos. I was shooting, uh, I think I was sh- specifically shooting photos for an interview with um, Skate Australia. Australia. Yeah, yeah. When Gordo was there. When editor? Gordo was there, yeah, yeah. And um, Snake was filming, and I don't know how many I tried, but then I made one, and I wasn't even, I was just rolling away, and I was like, wow. And I, yeah, I remember, I was pretty damn happy right about then. I was pumped. That feeling post landing a trick you've been wanting to get, how addictive is that for those that have never experienced it? Can you describe it? It's hard to describe because sometimes, as a lot of people say, you, you kind of you don't even realise you've made it. You're just rolling away and you sort of kind of black out in that moment, and it just happens. And it's it's really it's ineffable. You can't describe it. And then, but you know, if you know, particularly if, if you've been trying it for a while. And then you do roll away and and you make it and you, you jump out or, you know, roll away or something on the street or whatever and keep going. It's you, you, you just know how stoked you are because you've put so much effort into trying it and thought and potentially pain and you finally get it. It's, it's, it's what keeps, I think, everyone skateboarding, I would say. Did, does it, you know, you get that feeling, it's like everything goes in slow motion all of a sudden, like it just... It's like a zen moment. It really is. For sure. Surfers talk about it when they get big barrels and stuff like that, like time slows down. I think so, and I think that with all skating, when you particularly, you know, in the zone or in flow or whatever, it, things just slow down and you, and you see it all. You, you, it just is – it's there. It's super cohesive in that moment, even though someone else is looking at it. When you're looking at other people, it's like, whoosh, bang, and it just happens, but – yeah, it's it's a, it's it's hard to articulate. It's kind yeah. of in the final neurological pathway wires. You know, you've mm-hmm. you've been building the neurological pathways through repetition, trying, 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 and then it's kind of like the last wiring, the last wire plugs in and goes okay, and then it all it all makes sense. Yeah, I guess. Moment. And there's a form. I'm pretty sure there's a form of relaxation in that moment as well. You know, you just. You just let go and let, you know, fate take over or and your skill and effort that you've already been putting in, you know what I mean? And then it just all comes together in that moment and that's why you're rolling away because you know the movements, you know where the actual, generally speaking, if you've been skating for that long and you can do X amount of things, you know where your body should generally be and it, it, it just all it just all comes together, I guess, chemically, electrically, mm. whatever, and somewhat consciously or unconsciously, as the case may be. You know, it just happens. Yeah, Andrew Huberman. <coughs> have you heard of him? Of course. Neurological. Yeah. Uh, he's the neuroscientist. Yeah, he's he's ex skater as well. Yeah. So for me, he just carries a bit more cred. But he was talking about when you are trying to learn a new trick and you don't get it that day. Apparently, the real learning happens that night when you go to sleep. And then mm. your brain is actually figuring it all out while you're in a, in a deep sleep. That's why you have to go back a second or a third time and then, and then it'll make more sense. So he said if you don't land something, it's not you don't give up on it because that's actually when you're making some progress. It just might take a bit more time. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Your, your brain, he's doing stuff for you while you're asleep. Oh, well, definitely that. And 
And I'd heard, oh, I'm not sure of the validity of this. I could have possibly asked him. It would be an interesting one. Um, I'd heard that Danny Way, uh, Mike Tanaski had actually given Danny and possibly other team members at that time um, basically, um, I don't know, audio learning tapes or something that they'd put on before they would go to sleep. Please correct me if I'm wrong, anyone. But that, that it had sink, you know, it would it was thought to have sink in while you were sleeping. Like programming, basically. programming of sorts, yeah. Wow. And um, yeah, so there's, I would say, there's relevance to that sort of, you know, being programmed while you're sleeping, and you know, there's speculations, dreams, you know, lucid dreaming and stuff when you yeah. can control. Yeah, that kind of thing. I'm all about that programming and manifestation stuff, like. I listen to these things on YouTube sometimes when I go to sleep and it's just someone's voice talking at you saying things like like positive affirmations like mm. oh, I am <laughs> it's a bit hard this is a bit cheesy but some of it's cheesy some of it's good but like it says things like repetitively says I am kind I am hard working I treat people with respect and just reaffirming that over and over as you fall off to sleep, you should go and check them out. Like they're called affirmation, positive affirmations on YouTube. I, I know, I certainly know of that term, and I've looked into it before. And in fairness, and as as you say, as cheesy as as that sort of thing can sound, I I do believe that there's some validity to that sort of thing. I mean, the psychology of things is is pretty much everything. I mean, I was just listening to your cab interview um, on the way before we went skating, and. He sort of said something, and I wasn't, I don't know of the stats or if he's correct. I mean, maybe he's probably looked into it, but he said that, you know, 90% of um, anything is basically psychological and 10% is the physical. And, and I definitely think, I mean, to do anything, right, to do anything, if you want to skate or whatever, swim something whatever play whatever it doesn't matter play golf play anything you're thinking about it first you're like i've seen that maybe that's not a conscious thought you've seen it and you're like i want to do that and so you've got a skateboard in front of you it's like i'm going to step on this skateboard is what your brain is telling yourself first the physical action isn't happening first it's psychological first you're thinking about it Mm. first for sure and i'd heard years ago and and then i was looking it up more recently as well that um, some Russian scientists did studies into visualization, basically, and the athletes that did, to sum up, the athletes athletes who did visualization beforehand, um, or you know, just in training, more more visualization training, the ones who did more visualization did did better, basically, they were more successful in things than the people who only physically trained. Yeah, they did an experiment with basketball shooting. So they had two control groups and they had a group. They're already professional basketballers, but they had a group who would just could only mentally rehearse and then another group who could physically rehearse. Yeah. And apparently they're very similar, very subjective as well, given the different ability levels. But I don't know. I think there's definitely something to it. I think so. And I remember when I was skating Vertex at Tarrant Point, that was when I was skating Vert really intensively pretty healthy and and skating a lot um i remember being like sitting sitting on the bench at first doing some stretches and stuff before dropping in and then just being able to drop in and do runs like straight away you know because i was sort of thinking about it first and 
you know, getting in the zone yeah. before going into it. And so I definitely believe that the, the mental slash psychological side is is essentially the most important part because without that, if you don't actually have that, you're not doing anything realistically, you know. If you're not basically telling yourself that you can do whatever it is or something or other, you're not going to do it. Well, that's what I found interesting about Cab. And, you know, I've obviously looked up to him my whole life. But to hear him talk about how deeply insecure he was about his physical stature Mm -hmm. and his neck... You know how he's, you know, he's got like the... Yeah, scoliosis. Yeah. Well, it's not scoliosis. He's got mm-hmm. a, a an over a birth defect where he's had an oversized gland in his neck and so it puts his neck on a tilt, you know. And for me, it's always been, well, that's just the cab steez, you know. He's got that, you know, the style and he's totally. got his, a, a, birth, a birth deformity. It's not scoliosis though. I'm sure he said it was scoliosis many years ago. No, sco- oh. I mean scoliosis curvature of the spine. I thought no. that's what he had, and that's the out the, the top so no. outcome of that. No, no, um, it's the um, it's a, an oversized gland in wow. his th- in his neck. Well, I should know that because he was my favourite skater for like a long that's time. That's what I mean. Really, but, but I said it's, it's, it's cab steez, and he said so. But I was so insecure. He goes, "I'm still insecure about how tall I am," mm. and um, he said, "So for me to become successful." He goes, I really had to battle those insecurities through rigorous reinforcement and self-belief. And he said it really manifested when I first got on Power Peralta because it's like I got on, but then I was like, I felt like I had to really validate my role in the team. So I had to, it was very hard for him to get over it. And when it's sort of weird to listen to because like I've never thought of him like that. I thought, oh, I. It's just natural ability, and well, I think they all—they've all said that in any of their interviews. You know, most of the crew on the Bones Brigade have all said, "Oh, I felt I had to validate myself. I didn't think I was worthy, or whatever." Lance said that, I'm sure. Has that ever driven you in your life, having this sense of and desire to validate yourself to people? For sure. <laughs> Case in point. Goodness, today with Darren skating, my goodness, he's out of his mind at the moment. It's Were you comparing yourself to Darren and his skate? It's hard not to when you're like, whatever, when he's already, you know, he's had his thing going with you already and then just watching him going, you know, he's only a couple of years younger than me and he's dead set tearing. So it's like, and he was skating there, I'm like, man, what am I doing compared to him? He's just absolutely ripping, it's insane. You know what I reckon, because I think Darren's getting better as he gets older. Yeah, a few people have said that, and I would probably agree. I mean, I didn't I didn't free skate a lot with Darren a lot back in the day, but we did some comp stuff together and all that, and he was always good, and I remember the Horden Pavilion comp, maybe it was the one that Bart won, um, Bart Carnes that is, but I remember Darren was ripping, and he could do a lot of really cool stuff. He was really good at some flips and bits and pieces, but... Yeah, he's always been sick, but, I mean, the amount of... I mean, obviously, footage is heaps easy to get these days. It's more accessible, and he's been putting out clips, and, you know, obviously he puts in time because he's super technical. He's got a lot of tricks, you know, definitely. And that's it's really cool to watch him still really being nimble and able to whack stuff out. But I think it's the 1% differences... So, you know, Darren does things, he does these little one percent as I call them. So, you know, he skates with two ankle braces, even though he doesn't have ankle injuries. So for prevention of injury, he travels everywhere with a massage gun. So he's making sure he warms up really adequately, eats a really clean, healthy diet, he stretches every day, yoga, you know, uses CBD oil to reduce inflammation and... 
So he's just putting in the work that way as well. And respect to that. And I'm yeah. sure that's a lot of the... I mean, look at how good he's skating. I assume that's having some effect. I mean, maybe it's placebo effect, which is obviously a super powerful thing in life, as has been scientifically proven. But, I mean, whatever. He's, he's obviously doing something right, and I'm sure all those things are adding up. I'm sure because... But it goes back to what you were saying before about mentality. It's no, like, sure. who says that you can't get better at something at 47 years of age? Well, yeah, why not? Like, for sure. I agree with that. And I, I think that, well, you know, definitely some injuries can take people out and, and do different things to the body. I think the healing ca- capability is there. You can help that along. But perhaps there's things which are actually really hard to recover from, really. Uh, I'm sure there are. <laughs> of course there are. But, you know, I think... I. I th- liken this to music though take it to the music spectrum i'd say musicians definitely get better as they get older because it's not as physically hectic for you i mean maybe playing a guitar like that with your fingers in those positions actually would get quite um straining like rsi kind of stuff over the years but maybe if you can somehow manage that side of it i think you're gonna get better at your craft like that and, and get much better and be able to wang it a bit more and hold it out and just become a master yeah become a master ultimately that ultimately and that's fascinating and really cool do you think because for a lot of your earlier days you were a vert skater yeah do you think that's given you some longevity the fact that you have been bailing to your knees things like that or has it caused some long-term injury for you oh well i'm not sure about that (laughs) Only because I was listening to um, Andrew Reynolds on Hawk vs. Wolf the other day. Yeah. And they were talking about it because Ellis, well, Ellis and Tony are vert dudes and, mm. and um, Andrew is obviously a street guy. And they were sort of deliberating over which is the worst, worst one to be bailing down stuff. And I'm, I think they basically agreed that bailing down massive things is like on street skating is not going to be good for your knees and the, the whole jarring effect. But, you know, falling, yeah, I would say transition is definitely probably more mellow on the body generally. But, I mean, you take a good one on transition, you're feeling it. Well, like, that's the probably. big difference too. Like, yeah, it can be less impact. But when you have a bad slam on a vert ramp, it's real, it can be really bad. It's probably. You can go from the top to the bottom and yeah. that's like usually, usually, but not necessarily always. Like handrail stuff, you can... You know, you're often collecting the rail on the way down, so you've got things slowing down that speed to hit the ground, you know what I mean? But on vert, if you hang blatantly, you're just going straight to the bottom, particularly on the semi-smaller vert ramps without any much transition, small transitions. It's a, it's a quick bang to the bottom, you know, 10 foot. And if you've got that momentum of, a, you know, four, five, six foot bigger air before that, that's, that's a whole lot of momentum going down. So... Yeah. You, you're taking some big ones. Probably, though, I'd say, yeah, overall impact, like repetitive impact stuff is going to be heavier street skating from, like, feet up through knees, up through, you know, pelvis, torso, everything. That jarring effect is definitely 
pretty hectic. But I mean, Andrew's skating amazingly too for being you know mid forties as well. He's That's the one percenters, he, man. He's absolutely yeah. And then there's that side of it. Jamie Thomas is still skating pretty well for you know he's jumped down a lot of stuff in his life too. Chris Markovich fifty. Yeah, for sure. Have yeah, you, he's, have you he's not going quite as hard as those guys, but he's ripping though. I've seen some even, clips of him. But just some lately. of his recent clips have been even better. Like he, he does skate this one skate park in Florida a lot, and that's where all his footage comes out of. So he's not really in the streets. Yeah, yeah, sure. Whereas, yeah, Andrew and Jamie, maybe to a lesser extent, but I don't follow them religiously, but, um, yeah, they're definitely, it's like, wow, you guys are still holding it down pretty well for street skating, you know, it's pretty amazing. And Jamie's talking about, you know, the interview on Nine Club with him and Cole talking about um, putting out a street part, you know, for yeah. 50, 50 tricks for 50 and he wants to do it properly. And I'm like, wow, what's that going to be? Because if you want to do it sort of properly, there'll be some stuff in there. 100%. Like, oh, for sure, for sure that, definitely. He's ripping. So let's just go back. So your first job was at the surf shop, skate shop. I just, and, I just oh, want to go back to just sorry. to the c- comparison sort of thing or yeah, feeling, feeling pressured through to other people. Yep. Someone who I should have mentioned first in that sort of thing, particularly like... I was the I was the first team rider on Juice. You know, probably a bit of nepotism there. This guy's a good friend and was a good friend up until that stage. You deserved and it. I what are you talking them. about? Well, thank you. But then, then Skunk got on. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Williams, and you know, it was like wow. I mean, I you know, I know some people might debate it, but I would still probably say that, relatively speaking, he'd probably be Australia's best all around. 100%. Skateboarder that, that's, that's happened. He was amazing at vert. Like he did really well in Bolarama. He could do a bunch of vert tricks. He got Lord of the Bowl at Belco. And then there was his street stuff. Yeah. And he was not afraid. And he was pretty tech as well. And, you know, that his part in well, his parts in all of the videos, the yeah. juice videos were amazing, you know. And Jeff is just <clears throat> a freak, you know. And so when he's on the same team, you're like, well, there's Jeff, and what can I do compared to that? Because he was just. Well, how do you so overcome those feelings? Like, I, I mean, I get it too. I, I had, I get it. I do. I get it when I skate with Darren a lot. I start comparing myself to him. Like, oh well, why can't I do what he's doing? And then I feel insecure about my ability and whatever. But how do you overcome it? And how did you overcome it back in the day? Then, like, you know, well, I guess I just. What stopped you from telling Guy Miller to kick you off Juice? Like, I'm not good enough. Like, Jeff Williams you don't need me. Um, ego, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Wanting to cling on, like I can still do something. But no, I think I had, you know, I was a bit older than Jeff, not much in fairness, I don't think, but I had my own thing. I did just sort of did different stuff and just, Jeff was just a different skater. You know what I mean? I mean, he was he was just Jeff doing his thing. Yeah, He got, you know, he was getting pretty well paid by Juice at the time and all of that, which I wasn't or most of the rest of the team wasn't. But in fairness, Jeff was so prolific and amazing. Like, it was it was incredible, you know. He so was much hold- coverage too. So much coverage. He was holding it down and and so rightly so, he was getting properly sorted out. And was it him it and Davo amazing. getting the paychecks for Juice? Probably, yeah. Davo probably would have been as well. And Davo, of course, you know, then I was I was – um, part of getting Dave Iwana and being street skating in Martin Place at the pit. It's like, you want to ride for Juice? Would you want to ride for Juice? It's like, yeah, whatever. And and then, you know, got, got Dave on there and that was amazing, you know, because there wasn't, there was no real clothing stuff going on here and, you know, Guy was into it and core, a part of the scene and 
all of that. And so Devo was down, and so it just started Juice off being this, you know, pretty, pretty good company, just having good writers. And but we there was access there, you know, because like I say, there was not, there wasn't really the the clothing side of things happening here, and that's that was part. Like I helped. I started in '93. And I was going to the States and I got clothes from over there that he would basically rip patterns from and stuff because nothing was available here. And so he went ahead and made it and then, <clears throat> yeah, it just took off and and much much props and respect to Guy because he started, he wanted, I remember him telling me, I want to pay people. And I was like, really? Can you like afford that or something or other? Is that something? He's like... You know, I want to do it and I want to like, do it properly and pay people. Mm. And obviously Juice was sort of picking up, picking up, picking up and blowing up. It really blew up for a bunch of years there. And he wanted to invest the money well, you know, and he was out in the streets looking at everyone skating and he was sorting out a lot of people and, and helping a lot of people directly, indirectly by making the videos and putting other people who weren't even in Juice in the video, on Juice in the videos, you know. And so he was very open-minded about it all, just hyped on the scene. And I think that's why Juice got a lot of the support that it did, again, because there wasn't a lot of competition. But um, it was doing things the right way, basically. And so, yeah, it was just it just kept unfolding like that because it was from the heart. It was all from the heart, you know. It really was. Yeah. And then he, like, even just sort of – I think he told me once he just, you know, became a skate photographer – just out of necessity as well. Yeah, basically. Yeah, because, yeah, just, you know, I wanted to shoot photos of his writers and just, like, work it out, and he did, and he used to take great photos. Yeah, really good photos, for sure. And he was just dedicated. I mean, part, part of that came about from his injury, which you can anyone can listen to on his interview with Shannon previously. And he talks about that, and that basically gave him the time uh, and then he created his own impetus to want to get out there and, and participate and be involved and put it all out there and, and be proactive towards skateboarding and making it happen because he loved it, yeah. you know. And, and, and because he was so involved in the scene, that, that in itself gave Juice the credibility to where people were psyched on it, you know. Yeah. And then he started paying people and then SMP came around and, and then... Basically, to my understanding, and again, I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, but um, guy starting to pay people and, relatively speaking, properly, as much as it could be at the time, created impetus for other companies to have to pull out and, and give money as well. And so it really pushed things forwards in Australia as far as we've seen was um, concerned because it was like, no, let's do this and let's make it worthwhile people smashing themselves for it all, you know. And I don't think a lot of people know that and think um, a lot of a lot of respect for making that happen and not just taking the money for himself but putting it back in and and really giving a shit and, and wanting to, to progress and evolve and Australia to have its own thing, you know, outside of America. Yeah, it's good motivation for, for skaters to push harder and progress. And I think at that time too, like, Australian skaters were really trying to establish themselves on the world scale. But I think we've, you know, we've done it since then and continue to do it. But Big time. It's so hard. 
But going, I was just thinking as you were saying all that stuff, I've got so much respect for entrepreneurs. Like anyone that's brave enough to go out on their own and, and, and have an idea, a conceived idea, and then follow through with it and then stick with it until till it's done. Like how long did Juice go for? Like easy, what, 15 years? Yeah, probably like that. So it started ninety three, went into the early two thousands, didn't it? Early to mid, it started dropping off towards the latter two thousands. Um, it, it went into the markets, the Asian markets as such, and you know, it was just getting ripped off left, right, and center. And yeah, things dropped out. The street sort of fashion side of things changed up a bit. Um, clothes were getting more readily available. So I got bootlegged, hey? He got heavily bootlegged. Amazing. Here's a funny story. I was in Coles in Newcastle the other day and I seen a 15-year-old girl, probably 15-year-old, wearing a juice jumper. Damn, A juice hoodie with the embroidered OG juice logo. Crazy. With the little circle J thing. Really? I was like, wow, man. Did it look old? I, well, I almost would have taken a photo, but I was like, that's a bit creepy to take a photo because I want to send it to a guy and go, look, man, still going. Did it look old? It, it did. It yeah, did. Okay, I don't so know if it was an OG it. one, but it could have been like an OG bootleg one or something like that. Man, that's wild. Okay. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's an interesting, sure. hey? Yeah, definitely. Made an impact. How, how involved were you in regards to that company's image and marketing strategy? Um, I wouldn't say so much marketing strategy as such. No, that was all very much Guy. He was the creative there, essentially. Um, Rat, Richard Ramsey, Guy's partner, he was, you know, essentially the business guy and took care, took care of all that side of things. And then Guy, I think Rat did designs as well, but Guy was the heavy designer and photographer, filmer, like all, of, all of the creative marketing side for, for the most part. And so I wasn't really involved in that. I mean, maybe myself and other team writers, like I think Davo and I came up with the idea for the mesh shorts. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that was all Davo or something, but they sold ridiculously well. But they were really good to skate in at the time. Um, I remember skating. It was just super light, you know. But yeah, 90s fresh, man. Yeah, totally 90s fresh. Hilarious, (laughs) for sure. So, you know, he would take... Uh, team's ideas and, and, and put it out there or whatever, but it was mostly, I think, Guy's vision, generally speaking, to my memory. But so I was just, um, I would, I just did some team managing stuff, like not necessarily like the choosing of the team as such, like Guy was a good talent ID kind of guy, but but I was just behind the scenes, like calling everyone and making sure they all had packages. I could work in there one or two days a week for a while there and just sorting everyone out and organise some tours and, you know, would make the photo incentives happen for people and just take Filmer. care of all the... Oh, I did filming, yeah, yeah. I filmed pretty much mostly all of the first Juice video and the Juice promo video and then I filmed probably about half of V2 and that's kind of when I decided that, uh, that filming was too intensive and I wanted to skate more, basically, because taking because it was fun filming and it was great, like, catching all the stuff of other people doing things, but I just realised that that was detracting from my skating because you get too involved in that in a session and just wanted to... I wanted to skate more, so I pulled back from filming a bit at that stage, but um, it was super fun doing that. Was um, it pre-digital? Like, it was... You were using tape still? Yeah, yeah. Like, what were you filming on? Hi-8s? 
yeah, probably was high eight at the time, I would say, yeah. Super high eights Super or whatever eight, after a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah, that would have been V2, maybe V1. So way more labour intensive when it come, when it sort of came to filming and then, you know, retrieving the footage and all the tricks and sifting through footage and well, stuff like that. Funny story, that one. I've got pre that, I made my own skateboard video. What was it called? Called Skateboard Hit. And and so on the on the cover it basically had skateboard hit but like the skateboard after the S was really small and the S was big and then the hit was after that so it was basically shit. <laughs> Is that Ty? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit naughty, man. <laughs> I know, right? Um, the reason that one came about <laughs> it was before the before the Big Brother shit video. I mean, so I was you know like innovative. Um, yeah, were you trying to be controversial? <laughs> Probably. I mean, it was skating. It was ghetto, so it didn't matter, you know. But I've always seen you to have this, like, real clean-cut image. Oh, you know. But I don't think you do. I think I you're diverged from the course once in a while, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, but so I filmed that on my old boss boss's video camera, which I borrowed for a month in 93, and um, uh, John Winning, senior of Winning Appliances, and um, now his son, John Jr., has taken over Appliances Online. Okay. Um, and I worked there for a while, and that funded my first few trips to the States, working there. Yeah. Um, which was amazing. But, yeah, he was uh, basically my um, step-uncle, if you will, and so... You know, we were close-ish and had a good relationship. So he lent me his video camera. No way. And I filmed my skateboard video over a month. And I think it was just on weekends, basically, because I was working during the week. And that had Chris Holland in it and his best mate at the time, Scott Gibson. And then Alex Smith was in that as well. He had a part. And then I had a part. And then a few others, Reg... Uh, Regan Eyemonger and then Scooter. There was a few of the locals. And it also had uh, Mulhall and, and Jake Brown oh, and Jason wow. Ellis when he was up here Jason from Melbourne Ellis. skating the vert ramp at Bondi. So it had some, had some crew in there. Uh, which, which vert ramp would you say really developed you? Before I go there, yeah, I'll just say no back worries. to the video, the, the actual yep. physical side of the question. So I must have transferred all that footage. That would have been on a... Uh, see, it was a, it was a mid-sized tapes. It wasn't quite high eight at that stage, but it was some other some other format. But it wasn't VHS. But then I did. I literally edited that video together on two VHSs. I was going to say, let's go through the, the process. Like, so you'd get the tape, you'd find the trick you want. Then you would. How would you get the trick out of the tape? I must have <laughs> recorded that from the camera onto a VHS tape. Okay. I guess, and then all the ones that I wanted. And then it was then probably going from that VHS recorder into the other VHS recorder to create the body of the video itself. That gotcha. must have been how it happened. I don't remember particularly. I was just in my bedroom at home. And then and then my dad I had a, a friend who worked at a – he had a basically connections to a – a video processing or editing <laughs> setup, and I took it in there for the final edit and to add the music. And he added the he added all that stuff. And I think some I think I did the titling. I had some that's right. I had some super dodgy program where I could do some titling in it. 
most hectically pixelated stuff for everyone's names and and whatever but then i did a final edit a little clean up and added the music at this editing suite and that was it and i think I, i made 10 copies and i rode around the streets and sold a few copies literally in the street and then gave like, the other just copies to people to the in the street, yeah, like skaters. Yeah, I had a couple of people <laughs> bought them just for like ten bucks each or something. Like it was. A would total... you like? Would you proposition them and go, "Hey, like, do you want to buy this skate video?" Basically that, yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, "What's it about?" Like, "Oh, it's me, and it's got these people in it." And yeah, and you saw? Did you sell it to any surf or skate shops? No, I don't think so. I was just so clueless as to the whole thing. I probably should have made more copies. See, I've got a copy of it around. There's an sometime. entrepreneur in you, isn't there? Somewhere there, and I never really thought I'd be in sales and never or anything. But um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, isn't there? There's sort of an entrepreneur in all of us in some ways. If we push ourselves. I don't think there is. Some, I think people are really happy to follow, but a lot of people yeah, have ideas, but then are too scared to initiate them. No, there's that too, for sure, for sure. But yeah, I was just hyped. I was just hyped on our crew, and I think I was just mostly hyped on Chris because he was ripping. <laughs> he was time. a sick surfer as well, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, Or well, probably sure. still is, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't surf or skate really these days. He's semi-called it, semi-not, he fluctuates. Um, but yeah, he was amazing at anything he did. He um, he could DJ really well, like mixing up and stuff. He was just, he could break dance like properly, and I just sort of seen him do all sorts of things over time. He just... What I loved about Chris is he, he was super pure and he did things literally because he wanted to do them and that really stood out. And I remember one day he asked me when he was skating really well and industry was going on and he's like, could you, you, know, could you get me sponsored or something? And I sort of said, well, you know, because I know him quite well at this stage. He was one of the first people that I hung out with and was, like I said, influenced by but then got to know him as a friend and hung out with him and... He's probably the like, longest-running friend I've still got and I still, you know, talk to him to this day and stuff and and he's definitely been influential in a lot of ways. But, yeah, he, he asked me, oh, could you get me sponsored? And I was like, well, you know, you'll have to, like, shoot videos and probably go in comps and stuff and you just kind of look down for a couple of seconds and then look back up at me and he's like, nah, don't worry about it, I'll just buy stuff instead. <laughs> And I was just like, that is so you, and I love that. I have so much respect for that. He literally did things because he wanted to do them, and that was it. It was for no – basically – I wasn't looking for validation. Yeah, and, it, and it, he considered things outside of that impure. Like It was an impurity as, as such, you know what I mean? Like he just kept – Yeah, a full purist, and, and I respect that. And I've seen him do some amazing <laughs> stuff, skateboarding. You know, he was – I respect it, but is it sustainable? I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, there's that, and I'll leave it there. Um, but, but yeah, he was he was one of the first people in Australia to do McTwist. If not the first, that's controversial as to whether, like Mick said the other day, that he's he thinks Danny Van did it first, and then he did say that. Yeah, there's Johnny McGrath is in the question. I as thought well. it was Gary Valentine, to be honest. Danny, no, no, he's way way no, off. He, he had a sick one. Did, did you ever have a McTwist in your repertoire? Did mm. it ever happen for you? No, no, it never happened, unfortunately. But Chris, Chris had the first published sequence of one in Skate and Life magazine in the something else section in the back second issue of Skating Life. Amazing. And Scott Needham at took Fairfield, those photos. At Fairfield Vert Ramp? No, 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 at Curl Park when it had the brown surface. No so It was way. a long time ago. And um, and that was a proper McTwist and decent, you know. And, and then, you know, after that, 15, 16 years later, 98, 99, he then 
you know, handrails being done, but I'm pretty sure at the time he then went on to do, I would say, the biggest biggest handrail done in Australia at the time, which is the North Sydney 16. Was that a backside 50-50? Backside 50-50, which got on the cover of Australian Skateboarding as well. Isn't that insane? It was insane, you know, and and he was literally going to a dance party that day and he's like, I want to go do this rail. And he thought it was a nine stair, this one that he wanted to do. And we went and checked it out. He's like, oh, it's not like I thought. No, I don't want to do that one. And so we cruised around the streets for a bit more. It was me, him and Guy. Guy was shooting and I was filming. And and then we walked past the 16. He's like, I'll do this one. <laughs> and, and this is literally like nine or ten in the morning. And we're just like, are you sure? And he's like, yep, sweet. And then he did a few like jump on frontside 50-50s, um, yeah. like tail grab jump on. And then took him three just, goes to do the backside fifty fifty, and he yeah. got smoked on the first two, which are in the in Juice V two V two. I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he just made a hammering out of that thing too, because that thing was slick as. And I'm pretty sure, as I say, I'm pretty sure that was the biggest handrail that had been done in Australia at the time, or at yeah. least the deathest, because the thing was pretty steep and yeah. and nasty. And I heard rumours again can be validated by others that Mumford went there. He eventually frontside five owed it, but I heard he went there after that and didn't do it the first time that he went there but then didn't try it because it was too big or just I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure i don't think tried he tried it, it. i didn't it wouldn't try it to my understanding didn't try it but then he went back in front five over which is sick as sick. you know i yeah, mean was definitely up. up to that obviously <laughs> so he went home and slept definitely. on it and his brain worked it out and got over the fear overnight and then went back i don't think it was overnight <laughs> just kidding. it was over time but but that's just showed, you know, it was a gnarly rail. And then so Chris, you know, one of the first to do McTwists on Vert and then it was a gnarly Vert skater and then it was just a gnarly street skater. You could do anything and just wasn't afraid. He just loved doing it. It was great. What genre of skateboarding do you feel like you fit into the most? I mean, I guess, I guess transition stuff for the most part because I just really, I started street skating. Like, I literally started street skating and I had no idea. So I never thought, I never really knew that about you. I always thought you were the vert guy. No, well, and then once I discovered skate parks and that sort of thing, and then, well, I'll tell you, the start, I I didn't know what it was. And then I was just street skating around on my brother's boards, loved it, ended up getting my own skateboard through doing a paper run around the hood, bought my own reflex skateboard, and then. Yeah, it must have been on that board. And then I was skating with a friend at my local school, Lara Public School, um, with an old school friend, Bede Murphy. And then he he got down real low, grabbed the front side rail, you know, with his backhand, basically indie front side, whatever, and then just laid it out, put his front hand on the ground, did a layback slide on the ground. And then, and I just, it, I remember vividly thinking, oh my goodness, you can actually do stuff on skateboards, not just roll on them. You know, and that was it. I was like, right, this is insane. I just want to do this, you know. And then and then that just in, led into seeing all the pro boards up at Vic Ford's Bono Junction Surf Shop or whatever, and I literally didn't know that the pro models were people's names. Like, I just thought they were just weird, abstract, made-up <laughs> names on the board. So you said your first board was a Caballero, Steve Caballero. Yeah. You didn't consider that that was someone's name. You just thought that was just like... <laughs> Not, I don't know that by the time I actually got that board, because I had my reflex for like quite a long time, um, 
I, so I'm not exactly sure of the timeline there. Somewhere in around this time, I did see the Bones Brigade video show. Yeah. And that's when that's when it all hit me. I was like, oh, my goodness, there's actually super stuff going on here. And did that board have people. Did that board have Bonite in it? No, 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 no. It was pre, It was pre, pre. Yeah, not long pre, but it was pre. And, yeah, that's when I actually realised, oh, my goodness, all those all those names on those boards are these people. I had no idea about that before. And and that gives me my own little bit of self-satisfaction in that I got into it because I enjoyed the art of skateboarding, the act of skateboarding, over it being a scene or anything. And I had no idea about that You weren't trying to stuff. emulate someone? No, just wanted to do it because it was super fun. If you could emulate someone, who would you consider maybe skateboarders that you were really influenced by and wanted to wanted to be like, you know, whether... They're Australian or American pros, or who who would you regard as faves? Well, I guess, yeah, definitely at first Chris Holland for yeah. sure because it was just super amazing. Like yeah. he was definitely I saw other people skating at the same time, and he was, I would say, and people might not like me for this, but he was technically the better guy at the time. Like other dudes were really good at skating for sure, but he was just so together technically and into flying high, and mm. you know did twists and. And he just did, yeah, technical stuff. So Chris for sure. And then sort of after that, first real like slap upside the head was probably Danny, I would say. Questionable, questionable era Danny. Yeah, for sure. And particularly when when he came just pre-Plan B, the start of Plan B, when he came to... um, Came and did the Darling Harbour demos in 91. I think it was late 91. And they had the comp there and stuff, and Tuss was there as well, and Jake, and a whole bunch of crew, and Ben, of course. And and just Danny's style there was just, it was so, it changed everything, basically. He was tapping his airs as opposed to hitting the coping. And yeah, he really ollied into his he airs. He really ollied, and he was ollying into those things seven foot out. It was insane. And the next six months, me and Bart and everyone down at Bondi were just trying to learn that, and it was such a big change from hitting the coping. It was torture, actually. Finally got there, but certainly not not to the extent that what Danny was, and, you know, just the modern method, bang, rock to fakey thing. And, and then I remember Tusk doing the 360 Indian. I'd thought about backside revert stuff at this time, not that I ever did a backside revert on vert. I tried it, but I was too scared. Um, properly, or a backside decker revert. Any any yeah. backside revert okay. because frontside reverts were happening. They were pretty popular for the few years before that, mm. you know. And it's like, oh, that's like you know, revert going backwards. And I thought about backside revert stuff, but yeah, I never manned up to do it. And then I saw Tass do a three sixty indie, like about two foot out. I was like, oh my god, there's a backside revert. And that was sick, amazing. And then not long after that, Danny must have just gone right here you go, and he just did like a five foot fully overturned indie nose bone and backside and then just dropped into fakie and I was just like, what the hell was that? <laughs> it was just insane. And he was doing flips and stuff and then Questionable came out and he had the full street part in that and wasn't afraid and could just do so much that stuff. That was so good. Like the, his street part was so good so considering good. as a vert skater. Yeah, hey, but and when he backside three sixty that double flight, yeah. what was that? What the San Diego Sports Arena. Yeah, 
I mean, that's just... Yeah, it was insane. He was hammering, too. He was going so fast. Yeah, and he he didn't just fall off that thing. He ollied off that. He ollied into that 360 so proper. No, out on the rails and everything. And I just really liked his style then. He was just so powerful yet together and it just was it was life-changing that stuff for sure do you think it's cool how skating's going full circle again and there's a lot more like atvs like all-terrain skaters now again like you know i went through a real phase of like you're either a street guy or a vert guy or just a training guy but it's really good to see that you know everyone's like these newer skaters are trying to skate everything i love it it's 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 really cool because i think why limit yourself? I mean, it was pretty disappointing to not name any names, not that I could necessarily remember so much, but mm. in the 90s, dudes had come out and do, you know, they were the pro guys and they'd come out and do tours and demos and they could barely frontside ollie a hip at a skate park and you're <laughs> like, what? What's, yeah. what's going on here? You're a pro or something or other. Like, at least be able to ollie the hip and they would just try some really hard tech trick for the whole demo and maybe make it at the end or not or whatever. And you're just like, well, this is what? You know, I just wanted to see things being made. I didn't, it didn't have to be the techest trick. Just ollie the hip and cruise around and just show us how you skate the park, you know, mm. and then do your tech trick. Like, I love seeing tech tricks. I love it all. Yeah. I really love it all. I love seeing tech tricks. I know. I've seen Street Tide today, you know. <laughs> You know what kind of spun me out about you today? Like, when you did a frontside nose slide on that ledge, I was like, just didn't expect it. I I kind of was okay when you're doing, like, some stuff on the flat banks because I'm like, oh, it's got a bit of tranny, like, you know. Sure, sure. But then when you're, like, that, and that ledge was the high ledge, I'm like, oh, he just ollied off flat to a frontside nose slide. Mm. Fun street, fact Street tie I had, a, I had a double page spread Of a frontside nose slide On a pretty decently sized Sort of flat bar thing Against a wall In double page. Newtown Yeah yeah When you could do that what Without mag? flipping into it uh, ASM of course Under Gordo like, <laughs> Of course um, But yeah Guy took that photo And it was a pretty cool shot Underneath or whatever That's But right. yeah Like I, I could do Frontside nose slides Like pretty decently Over trick. time Yeah I love a trick And you know Some people can make it Look really good yeah. It's very photogenic, for sure. It is, especially when it's really like they're really twisted into it and pointing their toe and like a front board or whatever kind of back lips, sort of same kind of things. You know, it's funny so men- mention the backside revert thing though. Like, just anything like yeah, backside revert is so scary because I've seen so many people get messed up on them. I'll never forget. Isn't in memory? I've seen Wayne Taylor get really messed up on a vert ramp, doing a backside deck, trying to backside deck a revert. I'll never forget it, and he just slams so hard. Yeah, Wayne could do some backside revert stuff, and yeah. he wasn't afraid. He loved it. Yeah. He was good at it. Bondo mini ramp? Yeah, yeah. Killed that thing. Best mini ramp ever made? Oh, I mean, <laughs> we definitely had a lot of fun sessions on that thing. It, 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 it had its time. How do, you reflect on, how do you reflect on that era? Just nothing oh, but good memories? Just nothing but good memories, yeah. It was, it was amazing, and particularly when they put that finished plywood on it. That was insane. It changed the whole ramp, just six sheets covering the whole ramp, massive sheets. And anyway, just that whole time with Bart, Skunk, Wayne Oss, um, Stuart Canane at the time. And then, you know, the Queensland dudes came down, Curry and Dion and um, Boglio and Christian West and all those guys came and joined in the sessions and... Yeah, it was just a obviously an amazing spot being at Bondi Beach, you know, so the vibe was already good because you're at the beach and had this pretty perfect mini ramp, which was really good. I mean, it was big. It was six solid foot or something or other. 
So it was big-ish and a bit intimidating somehow, but we had the vert ramp there, so you go onto the mini from the vert, it was like pretty, it was good, a good uh, adjustment. You can be like, yeah, I can smash this thing. And it was steep enough to do like proper-sized ollies and kind of ollie grab airs. I mean, you could call them airs, I guess, you know. It's hard to call it airs when it's, it's not vert, when you're actually launching into things. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, but the like, training was big enough. It was big enough launch. and it was steep enough to launch properly. I saw Alan Peterson do like five, six foot high frontside ollies on that I thing. Could just fly, proper hey. fly. That was amazing watching him on it. But it, the local crew could seriously hold it down on that ramp. And that was six sessions. It was super fun for sure. And not just any beach. Yeah, exactly. Like not the just beach. Any beach. It was amazing times mm. for sure. Yeah, it feels like Bondo really set the tone for skate parks by the beach, didn't it? Yeah, I guess it did. Kind of did, because I remember then there was Maroubra. Yeah, Maroubra came about in 2000. But Bondi, they built the vert ramp. Like, I was fighting for parks here since, you know, part of the whole kids at council kind of thing since 86, 87 or something like that. Did you have a part in getting the vert ramp built at Bondi? Technically speaking, yeah, yeah. Did you, were you advocating for that? Yeah, yeah, No way, dude. So, yeah, and then they built the vert ramp. That was like 89, you know, so it was... It was a long time ago that there was a ramp on the beach here, you know, and, and when it was first built, it was, the coping set was absolutely terrible with the transition and stuff, and it was pretty, it was narrow-ish, but it was wide enough, and it's a, it was a, it was a congregation point, because it was a new vert ramp, and everyone came down there, you know, the Cronulla dudes, the Woodies, like, everyone, everyone came over here and skated, so it was a sick scene. It's the first time I've ever seen you, I have a memory. Cool. Caught the train from Nara to skate the ramp. We got here in the morning because we used to catch the 518 from Nara. Yeah. And uh, we went straight, you know, like train to Central and then train to Bondo Junction and then bus to the beach and big mission. So, you know, we get, sure. get here about probably 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning, like travel for almost three hours, you know, and then I'll probably be yeah, about that long. And then I remember it turned up and it was early in the morning and like, there it is. And we're standing up on the car park level yeah. to look at it. I was like, there it is. And you were just skating it by yourself first thing in the morning. And you were really? ripping. Yep. Wow. And, uh, yeah. That's surprising. I wasn't a big fan of morning skating back then to my memory. <laughs> yeah, dude. I remember. So. I had um, some good times on that ramp for sure. I learned a lot of things on it. Why did they get rid great. of it? No one was skating it. They, they get, didn't want to maintain it, basically. Because it got pretty rough, huh? It, yeah, it got really rough. So what happened was the bottom of the tranny, it's a funny story, this one, um, maybe, the bottom of the transition got really badly damaged, as the bottom of transitions and most ramps do or did when it's wood, you know, mm. and um, because all the boards are getting thrown down, it's main, main impact point. And so instead of replacing whole sheets, the council just literally cut a strip across the ramp on either side and just put little strips, like one and a half foot wide. Like cut out the bad pit and, and just patched it. Basically patches, but across the whole width of the ramp. And that was just up the beginning of the transition. And there's no way you're making a small piece of wood, like a foot or two wide, sit into the transition adequately enough to to make the transition perfect. So it was just this massive kink at the bottom of that. Same thing, and it just made it basically unskatable. And at the same time, wheels were really small as well, so you weren't rolling over it that well. And then they'd built the mini ramp by then, and so then we just skated the mini ramp all the time and probably went to Mona or something. Maybe Mona probably had a steel surface sometime in that period as well, even though that kind of had a kink in it as well, which was pretty annoying. Um 
so I'd go, you know, back to the sort of street skating thing. I'd go street skating for six months at a time and then go vert skating for six months at a time or something like that, you know, get bored of one, go to the other, mm. switch back, whatever, when I get inspired to go do something again. Maybe another Plan B video came out. Maybe you want to go skate for her again or something or other um, through that time. So, yeah, the, so anyway, when they did that with the round, I remember we all got we all got very annoyed at council, shall I say, for not wanting to maintain it properly. And, I mean, it was it got worn out, so it required constant maintenance. And I think they got over that. And you couldn't put a steel surface on it being on the beach because it would just get rusty, yeah, right? And so we were just like, right. And myself and Maka and Bart and maybe someone else, we just got in there with crowbars or something rather than ripped these patches out. And this reporter was there at the time. And he came over and he's like, what are you guys doing? Like, whatever. And we're like, they, whatever story we told, we probably didn't articulate it very well. But we're basically having a whinge about council not wanting to fix the ramp properly. And then, and then a couple of days later, I'm, I don't know what paper it was in, but I've got the clipping. Um, the, literally the headline was, too easy, so they tore it up. And it was a photo of our legs. He did. He omitted our heads out of the photo. You were minors, probably, <laughs> probably something yeah. like that, or you know, we didn't give him permission to do whatever. Yeah. And and then he wrote a story about us being unhappy about the ramp or something or other. So we vandalized it or something along those lines. I was like, man, like seriously, and pretty bummed. What like we, I say, what we, are we actually trying to do like just, repair it yourself. No. <laughs> Definitely not that. Like, or just, just rip it out so they actually had to fix it properly. Pretty much. It was a protest of them not fixing it. I mean, obviously, like I say, we didn't, weren't so, articulating ourselves very well. We weren't very good at communication with so, council. So there was some rebelliousness there. I would say so. Yeah, for sure. But would we, you, we were bummed. We wanted to skate the vert ramp. You know, we really wanted to skate the vert ramp. But it was just unskatable. So, would you describe yourself as a rebel or someone that likes to play by the rules? <laughs> Interesting question. I mean, I would say coming from that generation, skateboarding was rebellious in itself, realistically, you know. But it's funny, back to my mum's house in this neighbourhood, right, all the other neighbours, we lived up the, the end of this one path and there were all these other houses off this path, like four other houses off this path, and there was like the doctor and the lawyer and the, you know, architect or whatever, all these you know, well, well qualified um, people at their jobs and stuff. And then there was us up the end, the Colings, with my mum, who was basically an environmental activist of right. sorts. Yeah, and she did volunteer work um, at a place called Total Environment Centre in the Rocks. And that was basically what she did, looking after three kids and then. It was my older sister who kind of had hippie-esque tendencies and you know, now she's a yoga teacher and stuff, so sort of followed through with that side of things. And there was my brother who was, you know, the blonde curly-headed surfer kid or whatever and he was, I guess, a bit rebellious and he had skateboards and there was always skateboards around and stuff. And then it was me, the skateboarder, and, yeah, we didn't, you know. We were definitely the odd ones out in, really? in that whole neighbourhood. And that was... I don't know if I got that at the time so much, but in hindsight, 
I can definitely see it that way, you know. So I'm sure you were friendly, though. You weren't like oh, definitely. I got along with all those kids. You weren't that feral family who lived down the end of the street. Certainly not. Like oh, most of the kids of the other families, they were sort of mine, and then the older ones, maybe my brother and sister's yeah. ages, and we all got along. But I definitely, you know, we played when I was young before skateboarding days and stuff. Mm. It was a really nice spot. It had this whole garden kind of thing going and lawn, and so we'd play cricket there together and stuff with all the neighbours. Like, it was all cool, but we were definitely like... But that was, again, that was pre-skateboarding and stuff, me sort of thing, you know. So, and then just as things evolved, turned into the skateboarder and then I had the skateboard ramp and all of that. We were definitely the odd ones out in in the neighbourhood, you know. They played the more traditional school sports and whatever and then we did the other things. Yeah. How old were you when your parents separated? Seven. Did it have an impact on you, you think? Yeah, for sure. But they were they were really amazing about it and really tried to hide hide it from me, particularly. In what way? Um, hide it from you. Hide the hard part. Like, they didn't do custody games or battles or any of that stuff. And, and, and yeah, I'm very grateful for that. It hurt me at the time. I remember asking my mum, are you guys going to get back together or whatever? That sort of thing, you know, but obviously that wasn't on the cards, but I couldn't understand that then. But then I think, and particularly I know you know this specific timeline information post then, but after a couple of years, they um, ended up hanging out together because my mum's really into art. My dad's an artist and they loved discussing art and politics and all sorts of things. And obviously they were, you know, uh, they had to, get along because of me basically not, not, not your brother and sister no well they just older and- my older brother and sister had a different father to myself okay. um previously and then it was my mum and dad basically and then now i have my little sister with my dad's partner post then sure. and they're still um together to this day mm. and and yeah anyway so yeah, they got along for many, many years and, and would everyone would hang out. You know, my dad with his um, current partner, they'd hang out. Everyone, we'd have dinners and gatherings and stuff. It was all very See? ultimately amicable. And I'm very, like I say, I'm very grateful for them putting the hurtful stuff aside and, and making it so it was as least impactful on me and essentially the others. Um, as much as possible because I think it could have potentially been much worse because I've obviously seen that play out with other families mm. before and so, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. It definitely affected me. I don't know how deeply and subconsciously, psychologically and in, in well, you know, I... my relationships and stuff uh, post that, but, you know, who okay. knows? Hard, yeah. hard to quantify that. Yeah, it would be. It is. I mean, I've been in the same situation. Um yeah, I am curious as to how it might have impacted you, but then I guess you kind of answered that and said maybe it's impacted on your, would you say, your ability to to be in long-term relationships. Potentially. Hard, again, hard to quantify. I'm not yeah. sure, you know. Could be the relationship itself, could I mean, be me. And it takes two. It takes two, it takes two. It takes indeed. two. But I really respect that, what you said about your parents, like, you know, putting the needs of you before themselves and just making it, you know, making sh- making sure they got along for, for, for in your best interest, you know, having no conflict. I think it's – I actually think it's a really good message 
Because let's face it, so many people are going through those situations mm. in our society. Sure. So, and uh, yeah, some do it better than others. Definitely. It's like good. I never saw them have a fight or anything. Yeah. You know, and you still maintained stuff. like positive relationships with both of them and you feel close to both of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. rad. No, definitely. Yeah. So. Very thankful for my whole upbringing and stuff. It was very, I had a, I would say I had a pretty blessed upbringing. Wow. Sure. You don't hear that often. You don't, like, I've, I'm finding that, you know, a lot of people will say that they had trauma in their childhood for various reasons and mm. they've spent a lot of their adult life trying to work that out. Sure. Trying, trying um, to get to the core of it. I've heard that a lot, definitely, and I really can't say that I had that. You know, we we didn't always have, like, we lived in great neighbourhoods, don't get me wrong, and all of that, but there was never heaps of liquid cash around. Like, you know, I had that first cab for over a year. It wasn't like you can just get a new skateboard or whatever. It was like it has to be basically my, my birthday's in November and so it's close to Christmas. So, you know, for the next few years it, to get a new skateboard deck then, it was a combined birthday and Christmas present, you gotcha. know, basically that sort of thing. So, yeah, it wasn't – weren't super spoilt, but we did have nice surrounds yes, and everything, which, um, again, I'm very grateful for. But, um, but it, there was always love there and, and right. I always felt that. And right. never felt never felt ostracized or unloved or unwanted, any of that. Like there was always much love around and yeah, I'm grateful. The, the kids in your area, were they kids that did have families with a lot of liquid cash? And did you ever feel less less than? Because let's face it, it's a very it's quite a wealthy area. Sure. Were you ever comparing yourself to some of those? Well, I don't think so, to be honest. Not not really. Like I think I mean, the, the guys next door, um, they had video games and stuff, which we didn't have, but I didn't really, I didn't really care mm. that much. I mean, we had music, you know, music was important um, growing up and, you know, we had a record player and my brother and sister bought records and bits and pieces and, you know, so I don't know. And then I was just interested in other stuff. I had the backyard and I did outdoors stuff. So I wasn't, I'd sometimes go over to the neighbors and play the video games and stuff. Yeah. But I, yeah, I never felt, yeah, like that. Never felt jealous or envious of them. And they didn't, they didn't seem to have ridiculous amounts of stuff, you know. They had very nice houses and, you know, I hung out in their houses and stuff. But it wasn't like they were just getting things left, yeah. right, and center or anything like that. Mm. Let's. Can we talk about Adam Luxford? So sure. you rode for his company, Control. Mm-hmm. When did you meet him? How old were you? Mm-hmm. Good question. First time I met him, like just literally met him at all, was probably 89-ish, Fairfield vert ramp time, yeah. some sometime around then. And But, I mean, that would have literally been in sort of maybe saying hello to him at, at um, Curb and Coping, John Finlay's skate shop at the time, something like that. And funny little story there, I remember there, he was riding for Omni at the time. I'm not sure how his timeline of riding for Hardcore and Vision Streetwear and all of that stuff played out, but he was riding for Omni somewhere in there. And him, him I think, and Steve Sargent and Mitch Newell, had shapes on Omni. I don't recall graphics. I think they had graphics, but they had shapes. And I really wanted the Adam Luxford board. And um, my dad ordered it from Curb and Coping, from Finn at Curb and Coping. 
and then Carrie, I don't know what was going on with Carrie at the time. But Carrie from Omni. Mu- yeah, Carrie from Omni. Much love for Carrie, though, definitely. And because um, I rode for Omni for a little while too. And, but yeah, just the board never came, like for ages. And my dad had ordered it, maybe paid a deposit on it or something or other. And it just, and I remember my dad, I mean, maybe ages wasn't even that long at yeah. that time, but it was definitely weeks or maybe a couple of months or something yeah. or other. And it just never came. My dad was always like, yeah, he's like not getting the board and this and that. And it's, you know, and so it was just funny because I wanted the Adam Luxford model. And I finally ended up getting it or whatever. And that was great and had a big nose on it and stuff when that sort of stuff was happening. It wasn't quite popsicle shapes by then, but, you know, kind of shapes, but noses had grown and all of that, a bit more facilitative towards modern skating. Um, but then, yeah, so I met Luxford then, it's 89, 90, something, something like that. And then, oh, we would have skated after that then Bondi Vert Ramp, for sure. He yeah. would have been skating the Vert Ramp with us. And then he took off to the States for however many years. He went over there for five, six years or something or other, whatever he was doing over there. And then eventually ended up coming back and starting Control. Control. And yeah. were you one of his first team riders? Because I always associate you with that brand. I think so. Yeah, me and Mike D. Yeah. And From Canberra. Yeah. Mike D. Amazing. And maybe Braddo. Best was commentator. On. Wasn't he a good commentator? He was amazing a commentator, for sure. Anyway, keep amazing. going. <laughs> maybe Braddo was on. Someone else was on. Oh, man. I should. Well, Mulhall was on, actually, mm. as well. So, um, yeah, it was pretty solid. There must have been someone else on there. But, yeah, it was cool. I was, uh, what can I say? I was like, oh, my goodness, Adam Luxford actually wants me to ride for him. I'm pretty sure he asked me because I don't think I would ever have asked him, you know. And so he asked me to ride for him and I was like, wow, I mean, wow, you can't really get much better respect than that, having Luxford ask you to ride for him. I mean, he really did do a lot for the Australian skate scene. Amazing. I mean, how many, like... You know, he's kind of on the forefront of really getting skate parks, you know, out of the ground and designed and things yeah, like that was, early yeah. on. You know, he was really involved in that, wasn't he? Sure, sure. I mean, obviously Chad was too. Yeah. Um, but Lux was definitely there. He was pushing all of that time and just, just wanting to be involved because he loves it. Yeah. You know, he just straight yeah. up loves it. And, yeah, I just remember, I mean, maybe the reason why I wanted his board was because that Magnuson demo, I can't remember the timeline of that either, but at, at Fairfield and... And I'm sure Lux would went higher than him. And T Mag like tries to I think he's like, no. But I'm pretty sure Lux went higher. And it was like, holy shit, an Australian can go higher than like the big air American guy. Yeah. One of the big air American guys. It was a big it was, air American guy. And it was amazing watching Lux skate. And I remember watching him at Curl Park and stuff. He was super technical for back in the time for what technical pre flips yeah. and stuff were back then. You know, he had lots of stuff going Loved on. Loved a fast plant. Loved to fast man. He loved to do all things. I still reckon he's actually got probably one of the best eggplants that have ever been done. Really? Like, for sure. He's definitely up there. He would just fully overturn them Upside all down. the way around, like all the way around, like to where his board was 90 degrees from all the way around, like fully parallel with the coping and then just drop back in. And I just remember going, my goodness, those eggplants are really good for sure. And Is that how you met Mulhall? Or did you know oh, no, Mulhall no, from no, way no. back before then? I've known Mulhall for way, way longer than that. But I'll just say, like, with Lux, it was amazing watching him skate during the 90s and and stuff because he was often the guy with the ramp and and it was his ramp used for all sorts of comps. And so he'd be up the night before building the ramp um, 
Sorry, Lux, but there'd be flaws in them sometimes and not perfect on comp day. But then he'd smash our building ramp all night, probably not sleep at all, and then he'd probably win the comp the next day, like most of the time, except for when Tuss was there or whatever yeah. or, or Colin or something because he was just a machine and he could just go and do his runs, like no problem, nobody's business, just out with it, all of it, like yeah. no problem and flying and just doing – just luxing hard and it was it, it was amazing watching him do all of that stuff you know he was so consistent and, yeah. and good at one solid just looked sick yeah you know so. and he was like a big man you know yeah. he really sort of took control he did the ramp but he did but it didn't it really fitted that 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 brand that name for that company really fitted him for sure i agree mm. definitely no it was it was yeah an honor writing for him and just watching him do what he's done and he's still heavily involved and yep. he loves it it's sick seeing full lifers like that you know yeah, full yeah. lifer yeah full you're lifer. a lifer guess so what, what's your involvement with the skate industry now so like i know what you do but just tell us again like what your what your job is effectively who you're working for i currently am working with globe and Hardcore, which is Hardcore essentially the other side of Globe. It's one and the same, relatively speaking. I'm not sure which entity owns which. Actually, so this is going to sound like a really rookie question. Do the Hill Brothers still own Hardcore or are they Correct. out now? Are they still? Yeah, yeah. How long have they had that now? It's like 30 oh, years. Since the 80s, something or other. Insane. Um, I mean, it's a public company, but they have majority shares in it still. So, yeah, I'd... I'm not exactly sure of their overall involvement in day-to-day anything and everything. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they're still there and, you know, they skated vert back in the day and and respect to that, you know, they still love it and they still employ skateboarders and um, play that side of things and, and it's cool. Definitely. Sales so, rep. So, yeah, sales repping for New South Wales and ACT within that and just go and visit all the surf and skate shops and have relationships with a lot of them. And yeah, help them help them. You know, get the products they need. Basically, yeah, yeah. Advise them where yeah. necessary, and you know, give a little ribbing here and there, and try and get things happening. But yeah, I, so I just consider it all. I just consider it all about relationships, and and I love the relationships I've formed with a lot of the people over time. You know, I've, uh, before I was with Hardcore, though, um, I was working for Black Box, uh, Jamie Thomas company. You know, with the Australian. Yeah, the Australian side of it, um, under Barnaby Lawrenson, who was running it here. And that was Zero, Fallen, and Mystery. And then we also distributed Destructo and LRG Clothing for a little while. And that was was really cool because I know that Jamie had a big hand in, you know, who was getting employed there and, and so yeah, it was, it was cool. In Australia? In Australia, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, did he employ you? Or he no, was aware. He, he, was he made got aware to see. He got. He was. He had oversight over everyone who was being employed here. Cause it was a very small operation. Did you feel honoured to get that job? <laughs> Definitely, of yeah. course. You know, and I mean, but it, funnily enough, there was a guy, Phil Jews, who was um, instrumental at the start of it because he knew a lot of the crew already. Um, he he asked me if I wanted to work for them, and basically, I remember saying, "Hey, look." You know, it's it's rad that Jamie owns it and stuff, but it's just I want to I want to move on and have a you know more of a sort of career kind of thing. Might be the wrong word, career, but want to take it a bit more seriously and work and 
And apparently that was part of the reason that Jamie wanted to employ me was like not that I was a fanboy of Jamie and that's the reason why I wanted to work with yeah. the black box because I wanted to work yeah. and get involved, you know. It wasn't just because oh, I love Jamie and I want to work with Jamie, yeah. you know, and not that side of things. So that's kind of Because Jamie's thing. a worker. Jamie's a worker. He's, he's yeah. very business, you know, and, and, and respect to that. So I worked for them for a bunch of years as well, which was great. And Did it then, feel serious? Like, was it quite regimented under Jamie's regime? <laughs> no, because in all honesty, to my understanding, he basically washed his hands of it not long after it, um, it all got set up and because I think it was much smaller here than what he'd hoped for slash anticipated it was sort of going to be. Yeah. And then I think things get, because that actually wasn't long before the GFC realistically, that oh, yeah. this was all playing out. And then I think that all started happening. And then I think he had bigger fish to fry as that was all making itself manifest. Yeah. He talks about there. it in his nine club. He, episode. Do, he does. And that just reminded me of that timeline then, because it was like 2006, 2007 that this sort of started happening. So, you know, I was there for a year, year and a half, maybe two years. And then that all started rolling out the GFC and then it just became too hard basket for him trying to keep an eye on Australia and he, he had to deal with what was going on in America. Um, so, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't very hands-on involved in it, realistically. He just let Barnaby do whatever he was doing. So did they yeah. fold? Yeah, it folded. folded yeah, yeah. In basically. Australia as well. Yeah, that was like 2013, though. Mm. It, took, it took a while. It was still, like, ticking over and doing what it was doing. The brands were pretty strong, you yeah. know, realistically, until... Big dogs came and started wiping the floor, but that's its whole own thing. And but then that kind of set you up for a position with Globe, uh, with Globe and Hardcore. Yeah, because I was doing both at the same time. And then the um, the previous rep, he left, and they were looking for someone. And I heard about it, and I was like, "Should I? Shouldn't I? I mean, it's all right here at Black Box, whatever. It's fine." And then I was like, "Nah, it'd be good to work for Hardcore." So I applied for it, and then waited a while. They they waited a while. They let Changa, who was the national sales manager at the time, Changa Cross, who lives up in Queensland now and is the, the Queensland rep for a bunch of the brands. He was down in Melbourne at the time and they had him do a road trip or two up through New South Wales. I actually met him while I was in store one day um, randomly. And um, I'd sort of, you know, call him up once and oh, hey, what's, what's going on with the job or whatever? And then finally it came through a few months later, they're like, yep. You got the job and I was like, sweet. And then I was working for both of them at the same time because it's just an agent, like commission-based agent. Um, and then, yeah, Black Box a year or so later, maybe two years, folded after that. And that was – I was like, wow, I'm glad I, glad I went for the hardcore <laughs> position to do that. So that, that just, that's what I mean. I just fell into all these things. I mean, I put myself out there at the same time. Yeah. But, but my first rapping job, I was at STM – and that's way back in the day. Though. Way back, yeah, early two thousands. And then they'd moved premises to a place in the Bondi Junction Mall instead, and combined the two shops, the Saint Moritz Ski Shop and STM, and they just called it all STM. So it was ski and snowboards all in one place, plus some surfboards and a bunch of skate stuff. But you know, like I say, Darren was very keen on having the skate vibe, you know, solidly represented. Mm. So I was working there for a while, and then. And then uh, I got hit up by the rep who was doing Circa footwear. Oh, yeah. And then also, but that company was also doing Forum snowboards, Special Blend outerwear, Foursquare outerwear and Genius snowboards all at the same time. And she was leaving, Sarah, uh, she was leaving 
doing that job and so she hit me up she's like hey i think you know you might be good at repping or something or other and i was like cool and so i applied for that and then ended up getting that role as new south wales rep for those brands um in yeah new south wales so i had that for a few years that ended up folding because circa a bunch of stuff happened at circa unfortunately and then they had a whole bunch of money problems and bits and pieces and yeah a whole lot of things convict were actually um distributing all that stuff funnily convict, enough convict skate parks uh, yeah i was gonna say the con the concrete skate park crew yeah yeah well the convict skate park crew because con- the concrete is yeah. another company but um, oh, yeah, but, yeah, but the skate park builders Sorry. and designers oh, there and is too. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, funnily enough, there were skate park builders and distributors, like funny little juxtaposition yeah. there, but still involved. And Makes sense. Uh, yeah, but the, the stuff in the States, something fell apart there. I mean, that's probably a convoluted story, which I don't know the details of. But yeah, it was, it was a bit of a nightmare it's trying to sell the snow stuff. I didn't really have samples and bits and pieces. Mm. I was stoked because I've, I've snowboarded since forever as well. Yeah. And so it was cool to have those brands. And they were real big brands at the time. Peter Lyon, JP Walker, and a bunch of the others, Devin Walsh and stuff. And yeah. um, that was sick representing. O- OG snowboarding sort of pros. Proper, definitely. Wow. And then Circa, I was like, oh, I wasn't sure about Circa, but I'm working for them and stuff. It was yeah. really cool. Yeah. You know, Apple Yard, Jamie. Yeah. Well, Muska had the best shoe ever on Circa. I remember that we, was be- just before I was, I was before working that. for him. But yeah. when he had the stash pocket in the tongue, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. just genius. How many pairs Classic of shoes stuff. did he sell because of that? <laughs> a lot, definitely. Uh, he was on point. Obviously, I was after that. Stuff. Yeah, it was just not long, not okay. long after that, but a bit after that. Interesting. But Adrian Lopez, the, the AL50, yeah. the super mellow shoe. That was yeah. one of the best selling shoes in there for sure. Yeah. But that was that were cool. That were cool to work for because. Yeah, they were a good company. They did good stuff, I thought. It was yeah. a bummer that they folded because they had a good vibe. Yeah. Sure. You know, there was a big boom in skateboarding during the lockdowns and the pandemic, yeah? Do yes. you think, like, the – I guess you can only speak from the Australian side of things, but, like, is that boom still still happening in skateboarding sales or has it gone the other way? Uh, don't want to talk about it? In a few words, it's gone it. the other way. <laughs> Okay. It was, you don't have to go deep into it. But. It was insanely massive during that. And that was global. It wasn't just Australia because you know, I was doing, well, still doing the Dwindle brands. And so we'd have sales meetings yeah. about that stuff through hardcore. But do you think it was the lockdown stuff that made skate sales improve? Or because remember, the Olympics happened during that it's, time as too. Was it the Olympics? Who knows? Onset? I think it was a whole lot of things that just all happened at once. Probably. Perfect storm. Perfect storm. Apparently, it was the number two trending thing on TikTok at the time. Skateboarding. Like skateboard clips and stuff. Really? Apparently. Shit, how come no one looks at my skate clips? (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Because they suck. (laughs) I will not endeavour to answer that one. Okay, good. Um, But perhaps that, that side of it came about, like on TikTok, because... Because of social distancing and stuff, no team sports were happening, so the individual sports stuff took off, mm. and skateboarding is obviously in there, push bikes, surfing, yeah. I think golfing to a lesser extent, personal gyms, yeah. all individualistic stuff took off, and maybe that's why it made it onto TikTok, because people could literally film a clip themselves, yeah. you know, and do whatever they were going to do. Well, they're getting their essential exercise. Exactly, you know, and so it just boomed, and the, yes, the Olympics happened at that same time. So it was just a whole lot of things which combined 
And, you know, there was the government incentive money as well for people to basically spend money. Mm. And so because more, because they weren't doing all those other things and they were I locked up I never got a home, cent of that money. Didn't you? Nah. Anyway, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, so there was money and people were spending it and a lot on skateboards, push bikes, surfboards, all yeah. those things. And all of those industries have dropped off. Yeah. A lot since then. And I don't think it's necessarily because skateboarding or any of them are less popular, but I definitely think that a lot of people just got into them all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed going, I'm just going to skateboard or surf. Yeah. And then they actually discover that they're pretty hard things it's to really do. It's really fucking hard. <laughs> it's really you hard to You have to commit. You've got to commit. Surfing's the same. You can't just go and surf. No. You've you got to spend a lot of time getting fucked around. The whole thing, dealing with rips and, you know, getting wipeouts. swept along, wipeouts, you know. Surf aggression. Surf, definitely that. Duck, <laughs> duck diving, like the whole Fin-shops. thing is just insane, you know. So they all take perseverance and dedication to push through as skateboarding does mm. as well. And so people learnt that and a lot of people, you know, entry rate was massive, participation rate was, but then that dropped out real quick. But I, don't, I still see skating. Like, I still see heaps of kids skating. Skate parks are popping up everywhere. You know, I still see the overall strength of skating is really good. Uh, and, yeah, it's just the sales just will never, I don't think they'll ever, until population increases exponentially, uh, potentially maybe going forwards, then that will be the only time that those sorts of sales can come like that again. It was a blip on the radar, but it was a massive blip. Is that what inspired you to start a skate coaching business in that, that period of time? Or was it already inspired? Partially that, but also but also, I'd been a bit involved with uh, Alex Danini. He's a, a good friend of mine for many years who I met essentially through Michael Mulhall. And he's Keegan Palmer's coach. And so he was he was helping crew out down at Bondi for years before he was Keegan's coach somewhat and just always around and had a just had an understanding, you know, he skated a little bit himself and grew up skating and he he just was good at understanding it, good at articulating things, good at seeing things and and putting that out there and and helping people along with it. And he eventually he worked his way into just by being around and there and being friends with Chris uh, Keegan's dad. He basically became Keegan's coach because he was good at what he was doing, you know, and and helping him a lot. And just was in that position. And so coming up into the Olympics time, just Alex, we we had a mutual respect of each other just as people and stuff. And he knew what I'd done with Bondi Skate Riders Club and our skate events down at Bondi for you know the nine years. Uh, leading up to that time and so we'd just always talk skating and nerd out on it and stuff and we'd talk about all sorts of things and he would just ask me my opinion on this that and the other and we just got along like that so I was you know somewhat of a consultant towards (coughs) the Keegan side of things and and then I was doing um, some work with the New South Wales Institute of Sport as well which was through Alex essentially yeah Yeah. creating um, just just some admins, not admin, more than admin sort of stuff, but basically working on trick stuff for them to, to to create an understanding of what judging was looking for and stuff because I've been judging skate comps for a long time yeah. as well. 
And so just a consultant to the New South Wales Institute of Sport towards that, James Caragiorgio, really forward-thinking guy who was running that whole program at the time. And, yeah, so I guess that had all happened. I mean, honestly, the reason I wasn't into coaching before that, even though I'd done some while I was managing Monster Skate Park for a year um, in between repping for Circa and then getting into black box and stuff. I was You're busy. <laughs> sort of. Uh, Keep going. <laughs> only at times, um, as Shane Serena would attest to. Um and then oh yeah, I was managing Monster Skate Park, co-managing it with Corbin Harris as well. And I was doing some coaching there. But it was all beginners and the kids just, they just weren't into it. And because Olympic was essentially touted as a, a p- potential Olympic training facility before it was actually um, made a thing into the Olympics, mm. but it was on the radar. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely on the radar by this stage. This is like 2005. And it was on the radar at this stage. So... You know, parents were starting to understand that and, you know, I guess skating was pretty popular so, you know, parents were like getting their kids to skate and the kids, a lot of the kids weren't psyched and so it was pretty uninspiring when you're working with kids who weren't actually that psyched to skate. They just wanted to run up the ramp and slide down on their bums and stuff. So it's kind of like, eh. And then, but then working with New New South Wales Institute of Sport and Alex and James and sort of Keegan um, off to the side there, um, it it just became apparent. I was like, oh, I'm sort of interested in this and I'm interested in but the higher level sort of stuff. Yeah. And and kids who are into skating. I know, I, I believe that I can articulate myself and interpret things from my own experiences and I've had my own, you know, ups and downs in my, in my time of skating as well. I hesitate to call it a career. Um, but in my time within skating, I definitely... I went through lots of different mental, psychological phases within that sponsorship side of things, mm. touching back on, you know, comparing myself to others and all that and feeling that I had to do this and that in the whole sponsored realm, particularly during the 90s because that was pretty – had a lot of haters back then on, you know, once mm. a trick was done, you weren't allowed to do it and stuff. But, no. you know, all of that sort of thing. So so that all played out and then, yeah, I realised I was in – I could – I could help people with their skating, you know, and and um and it's 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 cool to do that. And be yeah, able to well, you bring there. so much experience, and it's, you obviously you can bring the psychological aspect as well. You know, that sports, I guess, for lack of a better term, like sports psychology to it as well. For sure, these up and coming, because where I have a problem, I do have a bit of a problem with it when I see people who haven't been skating long but can skate. Uh, trying to capitalise on it because it seems like there is a real demand for skate coaches. I'm seeing, I'm seeing it more and more. We all are. Big time. And I, I, I just personally, and I don't want to sound like a purist, and I really, you know, encourage anyone to follow what their heart's telling them, but I don't know. I guess I feel like there's some people capitalising on it who don't have the credibility. And I'm not just talking about accreditations and things like that. I'm talking about... Like what you were saying, that real long-term knowledge that you can't teach, you have to just acquire through years of... Being in the trenches. Being in the, grinding it out, being in the trenches. Grinding just, it out. Huh. No pun intended. No, I... Th- Do you I agree defini- or disagree? I basically fully agree with that. Okay. I, I think there's different coaches for different things, you know what I mean? And when you're getting really down into the nitty-gritty, when you're a high-level athlete, which is realistically what they are, I mean, yes. look, you can 
go back to the footy, go to the footy thing. Footy in the 80s, I mean, they're all just a bunch of blue-collar, barely even that workers, you know what I mean? And they played footy in, in what was the A-Leagues back then. Yeah. And they were doing their day job or, or morning job, you know, Garbo's council workers and stuff during the week. And then they'd play footy on the weekends and stuff. And then it turned into Super League and all of them getting paid properly and that's yeah. all that they could do, you know what I mean? So to do that, if you're going to do that, you <clears> need <throat> to be looked after to do that. So you need to be <coughs> strong, yeah. you know, and so the strength and conditioning coaches and so all of that comes into it. But then, yeah, to actually teach the skateboarding side on its own, I think there's definitely something to be said for having someone with actual skate experience who... Who and has maybe a, industry experience? Oh, and well, and then that's a whole other thing. So you've got to be able to articulate, I think, how to do tricks and carry yourself skateboarding, and and you know, an understanding of adaptability of different terrains and bits and pieces. But then, yeah, definitely the psychological side comes along mm. with that. I think so. Again, I think that's a majorly important part of it. Yeah. So that's where probably your niche is. That more maybe top end. Because, like, you know, I was just thinking, like, you could assist, say, a skater like Kieran Woolley with, you know, improving his kickflip indie technique, but then you could also give him opinion and advice on negotiating a sponsorship deal with Monster. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, can, you, you could bring both of those aspects, really, couldn't you? I think so, because I've had a lot of experience in the sponsorship side of things yeah. as well, and, yes. and just understanding how the industry works. And but as well, and on top of just a, like a trick technique, I think also lines really important too, like navigating a skate park and different things because it's not a vert comp anymore. Vert comps are one thing. Lines is, still can be important in vert too, though. You know, not doing too much of one thing, using the whole ramp. You know, navigating the ramp. But when you're talking about an actual skate park. You know, there's hips, extensions, corners, spines, yeah. transfers, different different everything, different weird obstacles. You know, the, it's about threading all of those things together in an optimum way. And I think some skaters are really good at tricks and some, you know, they don't know necessarily how to put them all together yeah. optimally. No. You know, because there's, as far as the competition side goes... There's definitely – there's no perfect way to do any of skateboarding, let's face no. it. It's so subjective. But there are definitely better ways which are – you're going in comps, right? That's ultimately what it's for. Let's face it, not beat around the bush there. That's what it's for. It's for competitions and doing better in competitions. And there are better ways to do things to get higher scores. Yeah. That's how to put it. You know, is it better skateboarding overall in someone's – um, opinion, well, that's debatable, you know. Again, subjective, but there are definitely things which are going to help you score better if you can put it together. Subjective and divisive. Like, <laughs> Very divides divisive. People, it divides people, but that's the beauty of it too. It's good. It's amazing and that's what's fun and that's um, – I sort of touched on it earlier before we, we actually pushed record. It's like I have kind of mixed feelings about it because I came from you – know, dare I say, a very pure side of it, you know. But, and so it's a funny thing seeing it being being in the Olympics and such a mainstream thing. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm sitting on either side of the fence. And I love its purity and I love the street side of things. I love all, I love all of that. But at the same time, um, I love working in the industry. I love having had the opportunity to work in the industry and the things that I do. 
And so I wouldn't... <coughs> I, coming back to is it hard working in the industry or whatever, sure it can be, but if that is open to more people to be able to follow their passion, I'm, I'm very blessed to have been able to work in something I'm very passionate about. I love watching skating still. Yeah, I love do. being involved. I, I love it. I, it's it's amazing it. watching it evolve and and all of that. And so I think if, you know, you can whinge about and go, oh, it shouldn't be this and it shouldn't be in the Olympics or whatever, but I... I I maybe not hasten to say, but you're absolutely deluded and kidding yourself if you think that most all of these new skate parks and amazing, many amazing skate parks are being built. If you think that they're being built without the Olympics in the minds of some of those councillors, you are absolutely kidding yourself. So we are blessed to have all of these facilities popping up and, you know, essentially what you could call training facilities or whatever, you know, these perfect skate parks popping mm. up, that is because of the Olympics and you're kidding yourself otherwise. Yeah, bro. You know, and so there's, that's amazing to have those opportunities and, you know, as <laughs> not being so engaged in wanting to go street skating these days, like it's it's hard, you know, a lot mm. of the ground's rough, it's a, it's a whole other aspect and that's why I have major respect for real pure street skaters out there and you're like my goodness look at that ground like all the euro guys and stuff atlantic drift and all of those guys they just skate the most hectic spots and Mm. it's insane you know so much of the california stuff let's say over the years has been kind of perfect but obviously as it's been discussed many times before all that stuff's played out had to go into different not in san francisco realms gx 1000 that's in well that's yeah no that's insane that the whole gx 1000 the whole san fran thing all that's very rough and all that, but that's all being pushed in mean. more recent years, you know. Yeah, and so that stuff is amazing to watch, and I love watching that evolution. It's like, no, well, let's do it on this stuff now, and and watching all that's just, it's so cool to um to to witness all that happening, as well. But it's, I'm not going to do that stuff, you know. I'm, I don't know, scared. Let's face it. And, like, it's harder as you're getting older and trying to take care of your body. And so it's – I love going to a nice, perfectly smooth skate park. If I fall over, I can slide along the ground and it's much Doesn't more gentle. Doesn't board out, you get, like, twice as long out of your board as well. And all of that too. Like, it was a super fun <laughs> session today at Glebe, you know, but it's not so intimidating. It's, like, all this perfect stuff that you can go and skate. Yeah. And and it's great to have all these p- options of all of these parks with that. I was out at Oran Park yesterday – Judging a comp for for the rumble, so sick. Yeah, it's so different, and and I had trouble skating it. It's a little odd in design, like overall the (laughs) the whole thing put together. But there's so many different things and cool obstacles out there to skate. So much, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. People could really do so much different stuff here. So we're very lucky to have all of these facilities coming up everywhere. Oh man, it's a dream. Like, what did we really grow up with? You know, dying for stuff to skate like that. So nothing, nothing. <laughs> it was very little. I know it was very little. But you know, your passion—it's so deep. Like, I mean, we skated for like four hours today. You know, and then three. when we le- three hours. Oh three. yeah, what time you got there? Ten to ten, about one. Ten to one. Sorry, but it was after three. But even towards the end, like it's like you still, like you skated nonstop, and then. Even right at the very end, you were still like, oh, I'm just going to muck around with a few frontside slappies. And, and like, you, as I kind of still got the vibe, like, you didn't really want to leave, but, you know, we sort of had to go. But I was like, yeah, Ty, doing it at your age. How old are you? You don't want to have to say. It's a bit, it's a bit of a no. bad question. Don't answer it. <laughs> still young at heart. You can all work it out. Yeah, so let's look quick. I want to plug you. I want to plug your skate coaching stuff. What's it called? Let's go. Uh, flow skate. 
Yes, Flowscape.com.au. And my aim is towards more intermediate to advanced skateboarders, uh, probably more particularly in the park realm uh, as such, or vert sort of side of things. But, you know, I'll also be down to do street stuff because I've got, like, I've got a lot of street background. And I'm going to put more videos up of that stuff on my site at some stage going forward so you can see. Yeah. I mean, I was certainly never the most stylishly technical guy. Like, I've always had a mob flip. It's never been nice and out the front. Takes a big you know, man. Takes a big man to admit that, though. Oh, it's, it's just a fact, let's face it. <laughs> Um, but I've always had fun doing it, and I love street skating. It's so fun, and it's, it's street, what I do more. <laughs> it's what I do more of these days. I love Gleave. It's so fun. Warm up on the mini, go chomp around <laughs> on the other bit, you know. But if there was a really good vert ramp, I'd probably go skate that too. I'm pretty keen to do a, a good backside air again at some stage yeah, too. Dude. Well, definitely you gotta, that. You've got to touch that tail, though. You've got to ollie into them, don't Like None of this popping off the coping stuff. Well, since I've done that, I can't – Yeah, it's hard to go back. Can't go back. Yeah, it's already there. <laughs> so, yeah, some things it's, – it's a bit random, actually, skate things. It, it can be one of – either one happens. Yeah. Because I'm not skating, you know, that stuff that much these days. But, yeah, I'll do it all. But, yeah, so I'm definitely keen on – you know, being able to talk to people and go through go through stuff that they're going through, helping through the industry. Yeah, um, I believe I've got the the understanding to be able to to be able to do that stuff and some validity out there to to um to assist in whatever ways. Mate, you've got more than some some things to offer. You've got so much to offer. Like, I'm not just saying that. I know it sounds like I'm like fully trying to plug you, but <laughs> I, I I mean, it's just like you're one of the few people that can. I think. Is legit can legitimately do it. Do that aspect, like all aspects, like not. I, th- I think, yeah, like if there's complete beginners and people, you know, want to teach a complete beginner how to push on a skateboard or do an ollie, I get that. But I think you're well beyond that aspect. Although, would you do that though? I was sorry, I, I should have added that there. Yeah. yeah, I would definitely do that. Like in the right circumstances, yeah. for sure, I'm up to do that. Because um, it's rad seeing kids get into it. I just, as long as they're keen, if they look keen and they're actually like psyched You'll on the vibe, then I'll work with them. You know, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm down for that. So, because yeah. we all started somewhere and I don't want to exclude that. Yeah. It's been part of my life. I mean, basically had to do it myself. Yeah. You know, because that's just how it was yeah. back, back then, you know, but yeah. that was all part of the journey. But I think that's also something if, if you are that keen as a kid or whatever, but Granted, they're generally starting a lot younger yeah. these days just because it's around and accessible and known and all of that. But it's, it's, <coughs> I think it's a nice journey to be able to discover a lot of the things yourself. Yeah. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and get there and not just be yeah. coddled the whole way and this is how you do it and that's how you do it. Like discover it yourself. Feel it. Feel it. And that's the beauty of skating, feeling all these different things. Feeling you know? it and then – but this is when it starts to develop those other – uh, higher order values like commitment and hard work and dedication and resilience, falling over and getting back up again, translates into all aspects of your life. Big time. You know, and I think that's where the deeper aspect of it comes. But funnily enough, I've had a few requests for skate lessons of people and I'm like, and like, you know, like friends or colleagues, like, oh, can you teach my kids how to skate? And I'm like, sure. And then like, they've offered me money. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not taking your money, no way. <laughs> you know the first thing I do every time I've done it? I always, teach, straight away, I teach them to push with their back foot. That's it. That's the very first thing before anything. Well, it's a fundamental. <laughs> it's such a balance-related thing and balance is the key to all of it, basically. But what spins me out is how much people 
automatically go to front foot pushing. Like as in, when they're first starting out, they just think, like it's always like their default, like, oh, you got to push like Mongo. I'm like, no. Well, I think... Dude, if, it's back foot. But if you sort of think about it, and I'm not sure about this, but if you sort of look at it, what happened with skiing? You're on the two things and you're facing forwards, right? And you walk forwards. And so let's say the Mongo foot thing. Yeah. You're literally facing forwards like the whole time. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I think, probably where it comes from because that's what we do. We walk forwards. That's that's being human, you know what I mean? But as soon as you're pushing, quote, unquote, (laughs) properly, not Mongo, you're standing sideways. And so that's a bit of an abstracted thing from our usual modus operandi of getting around, you know what I mean? I think kids that have started on a scooter first and then go to a skateboard, they'll go for Mongo pushing. Anyway. I think it's a bit of both there because I see Cause they're like facing both. forward. They're they? kind of facing forward, Pushes but you see their the yeah. feet are, I mean, not to defend them, but the, but the feet are, they're slightly a bit sideways because you kind of can't stand literally parallel forwards on those but they're things. Sh- they're too skinny. It's shoulders though, like forget feet, shoulders true. are forward. True, true. You know, and that's yeah. what I, when I have given these little lessons to friends for no cost, um, I show them the, the biomechanics of when you push with your front foot, how off balance you are when you have to try and get back into the sideways position. And then, mm. then when I demonstrate that and then I say, you take your back foot off, like, and then when you bring it back on, there's no upper body change really. True. You're, and you, yeah. you're automatically in, in the balance position you need to be. But I've got this other weird theory. I feel like with good skaters, like, you know how Switch Mongo's cool? Yeah. Right. I feel like Mongo is going to make a comeback in this, like, anti-establishment, cool, like, I'm pushing Mongo just to be cool. Yeah, mark my words. Big cool. You know, some of the next gen. never considered that. Like, some of those really sick skaters we've seen today at Glebe, like, those guys could pull it off, go, yeah, I just push Mongo because I feel like it. And then they rip. Then they do, like, a tail slide of that whole ledge kickflip out, you know. Anyway. I haven't foreseen that one. Just I must brainstorming. Say. Yeah, if it happens, I'll, you, you heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Listen, man, it's been epic. So epic. What a day. It's been a great day with you. And uh, I ask all guests to come to the podcast with a cause that they want to support or advocate for. So, what do you got for us? Um, I've thought about this after listening to a few different episodes of the podcast. Yeah. And. As a lot of people come in with humanitarian things, which I totally find is valid, and I was like, which one of those am I into? But one that I've supported for a long time um, is Sea Shepherd, yes. basically, because I think one thing which we basically we have very little knowledge of is the oceans overall. Uh, and it's obviously I've followed the Sea Shepherd thing for a while through my family and assorted people. And the oceans just seem they're so vast and so hard to basically have control of. I mean, the super trawler stuff is just outrageously out of control. You know, whaling, all sorts of things, and, and that stuff's just really hard to police because the ocean's so big and you can't see things even not that far from you, you know what I mean? So there's uber policing on land that we have, but out in the oceans there's not, and I think... It, it seems to have been, you know, shown that we're basically pillaging the oceans and the longer that goes on for, well, that's going to be, it's it's been shown to be unhealthy for the oceans when the ecosystem's out of balance out there and Sea Shepherd are, they're not asking for permission. 
they're just out there doing it and and i respect them you know they're kind of the rebels in that sort of thing they're just direct action taking it into their own hands and stopping that stuff happening and i respect that i think militant action is needed yeah especially like you said in those circumstances where it's kind of for lack of a better term like wild west rebels so they need that they do need it and I also think, like, these corporate companies, they're being radical, but they're doing it kind of within the rules, but they're using money to get their own way. And I think they're they're aggressive and they're militant. So, Big time. So, yeah, that's what's so cool about Sea Shepherd. They're, like, you know, just, like, giving it back to them. Big time. But, and, that's, and I like the ethos of them. I don't know the technical side of actually what they're doing. In, like, I know that they're, what they're doing, but the ins and outs of the environmentalist debate with that but i like their ethos Big sometimes it's yep. better to ask for forgiveness than permission right yeah and that's <laughs> that's how that's how a lot of things have happened over time with humans as well you know what i mean like big business comes in and tries to implement this rule that rule and it's by people standing sticking up for their own rights by making you know social and um, industrial change happen, basically. And that's what, you know, but these guys are advocating for people who can't fight for themselves, like the whales and stuff, and that's what it comes down to. And and as basically we are somewhat custodians over the earth, we have the power to change things, ultimately. And so there needs to be people uh, taking that mm-hmm. into their own hands because there's some powers who don't care. As much as other people. Yeah. You just got me thinking, and this has come up on the podcast a lot in the past, especially when I have had environmentalists on here, especially in my early days of the podcast when I was working at the Green School. I was around a lot of environmentalists. And I think what seems like humans forget that we are part of nature. Oh, man. Well, that's. We are part of nature. We're not separate to it, but we act like we're not and we keep fucking it over. Big time. And that's, that's a part of the thing it's like uh, the whole it's <laughs> a big debate there's a big debate and just to be brief about it i mean you, there's sort of like left and right in politics these days and whatever and i, I generally you know have considered myself a lefty from my family artists environmentalists and bits and pieces human rights my dad's worked with indigenous people with his artwork and stuff there's been a lot of that whole side of things um but it you know on, so that would be modern, modernly, classically left, basically. Yeah. And then the right side of things is capitalist, industrialist kind of thing. Entrepreneurialism, all of that is, is classically right, yes. relatively speaking. You know what I mean? So relatively speaking, that's okay. how it is. Yeah, because yeah. left is more socialist, you know, which I'm down for social causes, public holidays. Public, um, um, <coughs> sorry, um, public public schooling, public, uh, you know, medical, public hospitals yeah. and stuff, all of that. So I'm down for that. But at the same time, um, I also can appreciate, you know, not extreme capitalism, but, you know, like you say, I'm somewhat of an entrepreneur and there are many entrepreneurs in skateboarding and, and entrepreneurs have done great things for the for the world. So I would say, relatively speaking, I prefer to hug a tree than to have money as such because without the, without the tree, you're not having that money. If there are no trees, it's over. There you go. 
It's true. It, it's true. We need nature. Mm. Nature has given us literally everything. What is in your phone and this equipment right now? Precious metals which come from nature. With no ah, nature, it kills there's, me. There's no nothing with no nature. So mm. it's nature first, then business second. But business is important because we all need to trade and barter. Yeah. Money is just the bartering system that we have become accustomed to and agreed to. Yes. You know, and, and it would be pretty damn complex to trade in all the goods that we like to have these days without a universal trading system, you know, if it was just barter, it would be very uh, difficult. I was wondering where you were going with this. I'm like, you're talking, okay, you're talking decentralised currency. No, 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 not at all. I okay. just think, I just think, I mean, the, that's that's its whole own thing. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm not an expert on all that stuff. But money is a very facilitative tool to achieve the things and somewhat the lifestyles to which we have become accustomed. Yeah. So it's a necessary evil, as some might say, but it is necessary. I do believe it's necessary in some way, shape or form. Mm. Oh, look, I agree. But I do want to go back to the invi- the entrepreneur thing. I think there's a difference between entre- entrepreneurism and capitalism. Sure. Yeah, so I think an entrepreneur can create things and develop things that aren't necessarily driven by money or wealth. It's, it can be driven by community and just a straight creation and support. Uh, it's, I just I still see entrepreneurism as, you know, conceiving ideas and putting them into action and, and creating, you know, systems and communities and structures, things like that, that are your own. So no, that's super right. valid Whereas, points. like, capitalism is, I feel like, more based in, you know, wealth and greed. Sure. I, I totally agree with your entrepreneurism. Yeah. statement for yeah. sure and yeah i think you can be community-minded you know entrepreneurially for sure but i think i think the main problem is i don't think there's a problem with capitalism per se but unfettered and unchecked capitalism there you go that's yeah. the problem and basically corrupted systems there you go that's the problem yeah but capitalism why not wanting to make some money i think that provides some Incentives and people do a lot of great things with money. They help causes. Sea Shepherd is getting supported by money by people yes. with a lot of money donating to them, as are many great causes. So and and that is effectively only by achieved by excess money in people's bank accounts that they can yeah. that they can give away towards these causes, and that is based on capitalism. Yeah, true. And I think where I the issue I have is when people have to whose toes do they have to tread on to get that extra money. I think if you're doing it, and that's when the the ethics debate comes in and I think an even distribution of wealth is also very important. So, you know, distributing the wealth evenly. I'm not so sure about you don't that, like that, strictly speaking, like totally evenly. It depends how far or you're taking fairly. that statement. More fairly, sure. I just I think the taxation system could be heavily overhauled for sure and actually adhered to. Mm-hmm. as it's meant to be, it doesn't seem like it's done that well. Not that I'm an expert on that sort of stuff, but if everyone had the same amount of money, literally, that would just... There's something to be said for... I don't hasten to say this, but <laughs> inequalities of sorts because that makes us strive for things. And some people want to do them just because <laughs> they're just naturally driven, but as well, other people are motivated in different ways and we 
it's helpful to have something to strive for. Gotcha. That that can motivate people. And it's not necessarily the money in itself as such, but you got to have something to work for. Yeah. You know what I mean? If everything came easy, if you just got all the money, then a lot of people might... I certainly don't think everyone, by any means, a lot of people want to do things because they're interested and intrigued and want to be involved in things, for sure. But if money was literally evenly distributed, it would provide a whole lot less motivation to go and do this, that and the other. Yeah, you're talking about the reward aspect of it. It's like the yeah. reward for your hard work. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. learning a trick that takes years to learn. Yeah. You know what I mean? You. You know how hard you've worked for that. If you could do a trick first shot, how interesting would skateboarding really be yeah. if you could do everything first go? True. It would be pretty dull. Uh, yeah, well, ask those Street League guys. Maybe that's why I get bored watching Street League. Uh, don't get me wrong, Street League's amazing, but they're just so fucking good. They're yeah. so good, like too good. You know, like, you know, someone does a, like a backside nose bunt slide <laughs> down a 15-stair hubber that they set up, right? And it's like it's like the first trick in their run to start their runoff, and I'm like, "Are you kidding? Like that's an ender for like you know what I mean? Oh, it's insane! And it's like, and you get like desensitized to it. It's like, oh, and even for the skaters, sure. they're like, oh yeah, like it's pretty good, you know. No, there's definitely that side of it, but at the same time, old mate had to work to get to that 15 stair backside nose blunt. <laughs> that's like, an example. And and the reason he's doing that is because he knows it's hard and it's going to get him a good score. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, but he's put right. in the work to get to that stage, you yeah. know. But that's what I mean. If you could do a McTwist or a 15-stair backside nose blunt first go yeah. every time and you could do a tray flip, crooks or whatever, if you could do all that first go and everyone could do it first go, where would be the intrigue in that? Exactly. It would be passe. You wouldn't care. But I also think that's what's harmed Niger. Like just being too good and making things look too easy and being too consistent, maybe, and he puts out one of the best video parts ever made and then doesn't win Skater of the Year. Well, that wasn't even just that video part. Don't even get me started on the Niger thing. But that's what I mean. Like is that why, is that why like... Uh, he gets credit, the credit that he deserves, but sort I think of, he but still he, gets like a lot of shit. He gets know? a lot of hate and... Man, I think Niger is exceptional and anyone who actually pays attention sees the work that he puts in. He puts in a lot of work, yeah. for sure. He gets beat down. Oh, my properly. God. He, he takes slams. the beatings. It's not like that stuff comes easy. Some of those clips last year from last year were just insane. That, that switch front blunt down that rail with that concrete wall ledge after it and stuff. There were so many life-threatening circumstances in <laughs> yeah, so many my friend, of those My friend trees. Jeremy calls it death risk. Yeah, like, his whole is. part was full of death risks and there was some legit death risk in that part. Like, legit, I talk about this with Guy sometimes. <laughs> Guy's just like, mate, Nigel could have just kept all of those, like, sections of all of those videos and basically... Just kept them on ice for the next 10 years if he'd worn some really nondescript clothes for that whole time and shoes that you couldn't identify, couldn't identify the borders to an era or a timeline. Just keep all of that stuff. (laughs) Then for the next next 10 years, just film some lines in between and then he's got all the enders. Yeah. And he's got a multitude of enders for yeah. multiple parts. Just film some easy lines yeah. and some manual stuff and yeah. go and do some different things. Maybe, hell, just go and do some transition yeah. stuff for giggles. For giggles. You know what I mean? And then he could have parts for the next 10 years and not even care. Yeah. Keep, and Ni- keep Nike happy. 
keeping you on his contract. But he puts it all out and you're like, dude, any one of those things could be the end. Where do you go from there? That's the thing. But here's the thing. Like, what if if Nigel was wearing a pair of dickies and an oversized T-shirt? Do you think he'd get more love? From select... Fits of the popular. I know you are the sure. man that you are the man that devised the mesh, you know, sh- skate shorts. <laughs> so does his style speak to you? Hey, that's when that stuff was happening. They were below the knee. Oh, um, oh by the way, your Guy Miller impersonation was this was bang on. Keep going. <laughs> no, I don't know. I just think it's so, it. Hate is so <laughs> easy to have, you know. In a sense, it's like, you can be so picky and subjective and whatever. And and I think definitely the image that Nigel puts out there is a lot of people's. Mm. They have issues with that. But when you break it down, I mean, I've watched a lot of his stuff, and he's a skate rat. I be- honestly believe that he's a skate rat through and through. And I think 100%. that's what that's what matters. He's like smiling when he's coming out of lots of stuff in lots yeah. of different clips. There's a, a series of videos called the Strong Arm Sessions on YouTube, which are just all random iPhone clips and stuff yeah. that people have had. And I've seen one or two of those of his, and, and he's just like, and is there just any other day's clips? And you're like, man, you just ev- anywhere and everywhere, you just you yeah. just love it, and you're just smashing stuff. And maybe, maybe smart business wise. I mean, he designed a skate shoe that looks like a sports shoe that non skaters who like to do their CrossFit and shit look at and go, oh, I wouldn't mind getting a pair of them to do my gym workouts in. And then skaters look, oh, you're skating then. They're really well designed for skating. Like, good so on he's him. just got the market covered there. Like, it's great. And he deserves any money that he gets because he's gnarly and he's putting his life on the line. He's gnarly. Like, aside from Niger, who are some modern day skaters that you really like? Who's modern? Well, Jimmy Wilkins, as far as vert side of things. You're going to say that. Like, he's such like, a vert dog at the end of the day. Insane. Um,. I love watching. I love Keegan skating. I think Keegan Palmer. He skates amazingly. He's um, definitely one of the best transition dudes. When you, but he just keeps a lot of stuff under wraps. Mm. Um, really love watching Kieran Woolley as well. He's super diverse and gets can chomp around on so many things. Got some good street stuff, and he just seems to be really ad hoc and just throw yeah. stuff out. Really love that side of things. Um, then who else, like street skaters? Um, Come on, give me someone. Aside from Niger. Far out. Put um, on the spot. I know that really is. Um, I'm just I'm having a full mental it's okay. blank. It's right. The, you're old, you're old, but you won't oh, tell us your yeah. age, but that's cool. The, cool. I'm the, comfortable with it. The Euros, lots of the Euros. Like They're all, ripping. All the Euro, Yako and all, all, heaps of those dudes. They're so amazing. Carlos Ribeiro. Hey, yeah, yeah, like all those guys, a bunch of the Brazilians and stuff. Um, the GX guys are obviously just incredible. GX one thousand. Like, there's so much, there's so much good death skating. Risk. There's death risk in all their video parts. Totally. Mm. Like Tom Knox, you know the new Tom Knox. Right. He's um, yeah. he's really amazing. The Atlantic Drift guys, all of them. Feeling um, that. Yeah. There's just so many amazing skateboarders these days. Yeah, I love is. it. I wish I could think of people by name. Sorry, everyone, but no, no. Uh, there's so it's many fine. good skaters. Like that's what I love it. I just there's so much out there to watch. There's so much content. Don't and get sick of it. No, you to don't be get honest. Sick of skateboarding. Hey, you don't get sick of skateboarding. Really? No. I mean, there's definitely <laughs> clips that are better than others, like for sure, and some aren't as inspiring or. Whatever, but there's so much good content now. John there Worthington, is. the pool dude, the the new pool oh, my yeah. pool goodness. room. 
The pool rooms? No, is it pool room skateboards? No, no, no. That's um, that's Sammy Winter's oh, brand. But no, John Worthington is it's a pool skater. Oh, and he's sorry, like, pool skater. Yeah, he's yeah. probably he's probably the best pool skater ever. Like back right, up pool guy. Yeah, he's insane. I'm having trouble keeping up, and I watch. I mean, that's all I watch is, is like YouTube skate clips. Same, same. And yeah, there's just so much content nowadays, and everyone is ripping, and so they should be, given yeah, the facilities. Sure. And what's been done and the um, access to looking at tricks so you can improve and, you know, building upon what's already been done and stuff like that. But what really inspired me the other night, I watched a clip, um, Tony Hawk has the thing called the Vert Alert. Yeah, yeah, And he yeah, did a yeah. Legends. Yeah. Had a Legends session just the other day and they, he got his Vert ramp, you know, the Tony Hawk ramp, and they yeah. moved it to some venue. They might have been in Vancouver, Colorado. Oh, not Vancouver, no, it Canada. Utah. it was Utah. Utah, I knew it was a snow, snow area or whatever. Yeah. And Sandro Diaz, remember him? The old no, of course, dog? of course I remember Sorry, Sandro. You know, I love Sandro. But like, I mean, like you had everyone there, like Mike McGill, uh, Mike Crum. Yeah, yeah, I saw um, Crum. That was Mike Frazier. Yeah. And they're all ripping, don't get me wrong. But then Sandro Diaz was just on a whole nother level. Yeah, like, I should. I haven't watched the, yeah, the legend. Him and Bucky, obviously. And Bucky's just, just still relevant. Like, more, as, as relevant as they've ever been. Bucky's incredible. I just can't even believe what he's doing. Do you know Bucky? Have you ever oh, got friendly with I've, him? You skated with him stuff. I wouldn't say I know, know him. But yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, he skated under under Bart at Billabong and stuff or whatever, you know, for Billabong, so new Bart. So, yeah, no, I you know, hung with Bucky bits and pieces for sure. But he, just what he keeps doing is amazing. For sure, all those guys. That whole Vert Alert comp was insane. The girls are all coming up, ripping as well. Arissa True, mm. Ruby True. Like the yeah. girls are the girls are incredible. Sky is insane. Sky Brown. Sky Brown. Yeah, like they're all ripping. The Japanese mm. girls are all totally killing it. Yuto's insane for sure. And I'll just say that that Vert Alert stuff. There was some insane stuff. I love Tom Shah is absolutely incredible. Um, but even, yeah, Reese Nelson, the young girl Reese Nelson who was in there, my goodness, like, wow, totally yeah, incredible <laughs> stuff that's going on these days. The progression is just Japanese girl incredible. skaters, what's going on there with those Japanese girls? Just, I just can't even, I mean. Skate coaches, they've got skate coaches early. For sure. You need to, you need to maybe move to Japan, I think. <laughs> Yeah, that could be an interesting one for yeah, sure. I think you'd kill it over there with that. No, they're they're ripping. They came out swinging at the Olympics. That was like because they haven't really been strong on the competitive scene openly, and you know, Olympics and since they've just been absolutely dominating. Sora, Sora Shirai is incredible. Oh, yeah. My goodness, several of those dudes are just like wow, so tech and. Crazy. Yeah, I love it all. It's it's so they good do. watching where it's come from and where it's going. It is. It's still going, which fascinates me. Literally, this is a story I tell, like, Sammy often. 20 years ago, more, I was like, pretty much every base trick has been done. Nolly yeah. kick flip, nolly heel flip, 360 flip. You know, you don't want to do a quadruple 900-degree flip kick flip. It's going to yeah. look horrendous, right? Yeah. So all the base tricks have been done, <laughs> and I thought, what's – am I even still going to be interested in this in X amount of years? Like, how long yeah. can I be interested in this? Because all the tricks have been done. Yeah. Basically. And then uh, it, I'm still fascinated by it and I look back at that 
memory and think I'm still fascinated by it and I yeah. still love watching it I still nerd out on it and and get blown away by what people are doing it's just the terrain the adaptations to different terrains and that's what I love about the European stuff because mm. there's all these wild bits of architecture that they're just doing all these wild combos and moves on and just mm. just just winging it and just doing whatever before it was super regimented you know you had to do this trick at these spots and sort of thing and now it's so open and diverse and there's so much different things going on and it might just be that trick but it's off of this and into that or over that and you know the, the hippie jump video that the atlantic drift dudes did was just gold man through that phone box yeah 180 it was just like are you kidding me yeah stuff was just that stuff is just amazing well the creativity is endless the creativity is endless like even you just got me thinking about like the member the man ramp clips that were coming out like man just man like the only skaters think of shit like that it's so creative like it has such the ability to do that, you know, because yeah. skateboarding isn't attached, it's nothing, you don't, you know, you're just out there and you can do so many things with it. So true. It, and that, that just keeps it fascinating and it's still going. I'm still like, wow, something still is blowing me away. It's funny, in my 20s I asked myself that, oh, I wonder if I'll still be interested in, like, what's going on in skating in my 40s and, well, I guess the answer is yes, yeah. Yeah, turns out it turns out I am still interested. <laughs> Big time, right? It's still, yeah. but it's maybe still. more so. Like I'm going through this new era of it, where it's like now I'm just like I feel like I'm a guy that oh yeah, like I want to be the guy that oh you skate all right for someone in their late forties. Like I like that. It's like this new thing. It's like, oh wow, like you're in your late forties. Oh wow, and you still you can still flip your board. Yeah, like oh cool. Like uh, it's like this new buzz. Do you feel that for sure? <laughs> it's 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 super. It's funny because I never thought it. Because old guys, when I was young, like Tony Hawk was old, twenty nine, and, and he's five years <laughs> older than me. You know what I mean, or whatever. And yeah. and the the old guys were only five years older than us yeah. back in the day. It was like, oh my goodness, you're old, and now they're just so not. Now there's, yeah. it's it's grown so much through that time. People keep skating, and and it is pretty amazing. And crew are just still loving it and still doing it, and to you know, lesser technical extent, except for some people, Tony, Jamie, Reynolds, like all those dudes still like kind of holding it up, yeah. you know, it's, it's really cool to see, but the generations are so many different generations of it all that it's, it's gold. So man, we're like, what a gift hey, to have a passion like this. Yeah, definitely. I was, I was just you saying flipping your board. I was bummed. I didn't do a flip today. I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Tell me about That's how many tries did it take me to do that hill flip up the, up that um, gap? Not that many. It was just, maybe, you know, you just really 10? wanted it. Less I than think th- it was less than 10. Okay. But still, uh, look, again, this is where I'm much nicer to myself. I'm like, I'm like, I should have made that first or second shot. But it's like, and then Darren does stuff first or second shot. But then I'm like, no, nah, like uh, I persevered and I did it. You know, like that's, I'm happy with that. Like it's like you count your victories differently, I think. Definitely. And I've, it's taken me a long time to get yeah. used to that. But you know what tripped me out about you today? When you did a frontside grind on that real, that, that uh, it's like a wall ride, that little wall ride that's so oh, steep. It's just a bank. Well, it's not. It's more than a bank. It's like a wall that's on an angle, a slight oh, angle. Sure. It's steep as hell. But to hit it front side, like I, I went up it back side and I could barely get up it. Like I felt like I was doing a wall ride. But you got up it so easy and then your 5 grind on it and then into a front side nose side. I was like, Ty's doing it, man. Well, that's funny you should say that. And that's what Guy said to me years ago about me and Skunk being on juice. He's like, yeah. you can skate a pool and weird stuff 
like skunk skates other things and skunk can't do those things as much yeah. you know and that's what I, I like skating weird <laughs> stuff in fairness backside on that thing that bank thing today is hard for me i've tried to go backside but the frontside grind is just easy for me to do on that. i really wanted to do it on that on the steep the wall jam thing but i didn't get which one? On oh, that, that thing. The barrier yeah, that, that's, thing. That's, I mean, that's hard to skate too. That's hard. Did you get a backside scratch on that? I, I don't, don't think remember. so. It was close, but it wasn't there. Yeah. yeah. Skunk, no. man. There wasn't much he couldn't do, really. I'll do. Yeah. <laughs> I know he lives up in North Queensland, doesn't he? Yeah. Skating? Did you ever, you ever talk to him? Not much. No. Yeah. I think he does here and there. He's just doing his thing up there. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. just working, family man, doing yeah. that stuff, loving nature. Yeah. Loving right. life. He's a conservationist. Yeah, He's yeah. got that conservationist vibe. He certainly does. He, awesome. He's aware. He knows what's going on with all conscious. that stuff. Yeah. Living consciously. Definitely. Love skunk. Yeah, man. Love all those guys. Throwback to the old juice days. It was super good. Rad hanging out with all those guys and getting to know everyone through that whole time. It's great. Yeah, dude. You guys are killing it. I loved it. And I um, I really do I really do remember and love how this, the juice videos that you did, there was like everyone had a cameo. Anyone that... Anyone that had the time to film with you, you'd give them a cameo in that. In that, you know, had you, you core writers, but there was, you look at the list on the back of those videos. There's like, there's like thirty skaters in those things. You know, it's so sick. And I remember you worked really hard to get everyone a little piece of that, didn't you? Well, I like mean, V2, sure, me, that it was V2 me. It was especially. me and Guy. It was both. We were just out filming crew it wasn't like you didn't care they didn't have to write for juice no but it, that's not more so my point is it wasn't like you'd tee up with Davo to go and film his part I mean there was bits of that happening or guy definitely went out with Jeff to film stuff specifically but it was like you would just sort of go into the city and film and and just people would be around the crew would be around so it was just sessions and so you're filming it they put it in the video. Yeah. Like, just encourage everyone. It was just part of community. It mm. wasn't super elitist, you know. That's what I loved about it. You were trying to create community back before that was even a term. But there was just always a distinct lack of ego with you and Guy. And I always used to really admire that, man. And I think a lot of people feel it. Well, so. that's awesome. And you were saying you, but it's definitely... Guy was a big part of that too, but it was also yeah. me. Like when I first shot the first Juice video, I literally, I just didn't work for months. I'd saved up a whole bunch of money and then I just lived off that money and I just went around and filmed people skating for months to make the first Juice video. I remember. You know? I remember seeing you were always around with a video camera. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes I was multitasking. I remember at the X Games, I was skating the vert and quote-unquote street comps. I don't know if you could really call them street courses at that stage. <laughs> yeah, it was hectic. Big ones too, right? Yeah. But then I was like skating the vert comp, skating the street comp, and then videoing everything that I wasn't skate when I wasn't skating. And I was like, I had mm. my, my pad bag on and the video bag on the front and just like it was hectic. I had a street board and a vert board. I was just like this guy overladen with stuff. It was just trying to trying to fit it all in and... You know, like, you know that surf term that surfers use, like someone's a frother? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's what you're like, you are. You're, like, you're a full f- skate frother. Just full. frothing, frothing to, to everything skate. Well, skate like rap. That. That's the, that's the that's skate That's what we term, use, yeah. Rap. Surfers call them frothers. Frothers, yeah, yeah for sure. I love best. surfing too. You still surf? Yeah, for sure. Get in the water? Love it, yeah. What do you like about surf it? Surf skating. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, I know Guy does. And I I surf too. And I've actually, and I've done a lot of surfing over the last 20 years, but I, I've actually pulled back from it a little bit. 
Just need to change from it, need to break from it. I still love it. But what does surf- surfing do for you that skating doesn't? I feel better after surfing when I get out of the water as opposed to skating when I feel worse. Are you going to feel sore tomorrow? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's just, it's such a different thing. Just feeling, feeling the push of a wave behind you, there's just no other feeling like that. And then to actually then do something on that wave is really cool and they're so fickle and they're always changing and it's, you know, the crowd is definitely an off-putting factor. But when you do get either an uncrowded session or you manage to blag a lot of waves, if it is a crowded sort of session or whatever, but you actually get decent waves to ride and then you can actually put some moves together. Because I love to do, I try and do stuff on a wave. Like, you know, I'm not the air guy or anything, but cutties and hooks and snaps and rios or whatever, like just feeling all those things. And they're always kind of different you know i've done a few laybacks here and there and stuff and it's okay. just it's just fun it's just yeah. super fun because you never know if you're going to get that section or that wave is going to produce a section or whatever so when you get it and then you get like multiple turns into the beach it's it's like you're like you you've won yeah you only need three sometimes you only need one wave in an yeah. hour session whereas yeah. skating you know, you want to do so much in a session, you know, but you can be happy, you can be legitimately happy with one good wave in an hour or two, yeah. even two hours session. If you get a really good wave, you just, you remember that for ages, you know yeah. what I mean? And if you get heaps of waves, it's just like, woo! Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. it teaches you not to be greedy, but also, it, you know, it's so healthy. Like, you're immersing yourself in nature, you, you don't have access to a phone or a computer, yeah. And you have to switch off from those things and then you're, you're paddling and you're breathing heavily, you yeah. know, that, and so it's like really helping your, like your breathing. So it's like a form of like breath work, you know, paddling, duck diving. And then obviously physically it's quite demanding on your, especially your arms, your paddling and your shoulders and stuff like that. Sure, surf fitness is something else. It's different. But also you've got, you got your core switched on the whole time you're laying on your board. and Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's so many benefits to it. Antioxidants from the whitewash. I've heard that, yeah. Like those, those good ions. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then here's the other thing, like if you're surfing at sunset or dusk, you know, you, you're getting the sun sunrise and the sunset, that those light that light in the morning is meant to be really good for hormonal regulation. Yeah, yeah, for sure, sure. So sure. like seeing that light, seeing those colours in the morning and those colours in the evening uh, apparently triggers the appropriate hormones for waking up and then going to sleep. And and sleep regulation for sure. Yeah, no, all of that. Magnesium in the water. Yeah, right. Could go, on. That one. Could go on. I will add to surfing too. Like it's, unless you get completely punished, it's fun getting rinsed in a wave and being completely out of control in the whitewash underwater, yeah. just like rolling with it. How much That's easier is it than itself. slamming on a well, skin? Exactly <laughs> that, like definitely. But it's fun, you like out of control, just getting washed around. It's like, cool, if you kind of know that you're not getting completely punished and you'll be able to pop up in a second yeah. and get your breath. I enjoy that side of it too. Like That surf culture though, dude. Fuck. It's interesting. It's, it's different to skating, eh? It's so different. It's so different because it's... Because it's a, it's not, but it's it's a more finite resource as such. You know what I mean? The, the, you know, you've been out there and it just goes flat, yeah, and that's it. Yeah, or it just goes terrible or whatever. You know what I mean? It's so that whole side of things is so different. You it, know, it's supply and demand too. You know, yeah. like and there's that many surfers. There's not enough supply of waves to keep everyone happy. So then, the better surfers have to push the. The, the less good surfers down to get on top to get more waves. And my friend, Basically. my friend who's a journalist for Stab Magazine, reckons that it's a, a metaphor for capitalism surfing. 
That's what he calls it. That's a valid point. Sure. It's pretty funny, actually. Definitely. It's pretty brutal. It. Yeah, it's pretty funny. dog eat dog. Anyway, man, it's been epic, and um, it's, I think it's time to wrap it up, man. Yeah, fair call. You've had a big day. Yeah, so have you. Yeah. It's been a pleasure, man. I feel like I Likewise. can keep talking, but. No, no, same, same, but I, I can see is the time there, there, too. Is there anything I just want to end on? Like, or do you want to just do the full Mike Valley episode? Mike V, five five hour five hour episode. Man, I've, I've definitely got more stories. Yeah, I know. I've been around for a while, man. You know what? Actually, is one story which I got just <laughs> yesterday. It can be a quick one, but you'll be stoked on it because Mulhall brought it up. I was just listening to Mulhalls yesterday, and he was talking about the Nirvana big day out. Yeah, or whatever. So I, he mustn't have been there. But so Nirvana played in the Horton. The skating wasn't in the Horton Pavilion. However, the day before, I didn't have tickets to the first big day. Out. This is '92. <laughs> And Nirvana were playing, Violent Femmes were playing, I think Primus too. And, um, Insane, dude. And um, anyway, there was skate demos happening, but they were also having a little renegade street sort of thing happening, and Davo was part of that, right? And so In 92. 92. And so we were all sort of hanging out collectively then. Obviously, I live not far from the Horton Pavilion, you know, where it was all then. And, um, and for some reason... Maybe we skate. We just knew that something was happening, so me and friends were down skating in there or something. Because we used to skate in in that precinct or whatever. What's now the entertainment quarter? Yeah, we used to skate in there. There was skatable stuff in there. So we went down there the day before, and it started raining, and we ended up taking jump ramp into the Horton Pavilion for some reason. We were allowed in because things were so much looser back then, generally in life. And then there's a bunch of us skating. Uh, the jump ramp in there. I'm sure Dave was in there. Nathan Ho was there, I'm pretty sure. And um, my good old friend Paul French, who I used to skate with back in the day. Not roller skater? No, no, no. Who no, was the no, roller skater? No, no, that was Paul Rollerball. Paul Rollerball, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, there was a whole bunch of skating there. And then Nirvana came out and did a sound check. Six-song sound check Bullshit. with, like, 50 of us in the Horton Pavilion. And you got a private show. We got a private show. Six-song private show by Nirvana. What songs were they like? Oh, I can't remember that. But smells like Teen some... Spirit? I don't think they did Teen Spirit. But it was like... And how, how was it? Were you just blown away? Well, we're just, like, westgating to Nirvana right now. And, you know, it only just gotten, you know, bleach or whatever. I mean, yeah. never mind, I never should mind. say. Yeah, never yeah. mind. And all of that. So it was just like, oh, my goodness. We're, and, it was like, they played one song. It was like, cool, the sound check. And then they just played five more songs. And it was like, I can't believe we just got a private Nirvana show. Wait, why? That was I like, knew, whoa. I knew you had some stories like that. Yeah, no, that was that was pretty special. And then we didn't have tickets, me and my friend Paul. We really wanted to go see a bunch of the bands. The next day, we were, like, looking around to try and jump the fence or whatever, but that just didn't seem possible. And then they opened up ticket sales at the door, like a hundred tickets, and we just managed to get in that line. No, because you know, I wasn't part of the skating demo at that stage. Vert yeah. skating wasn't quite up to the scratch right then, but we ended up getting yeah part of the hundred tickets and yeah. got in there and got to see again, got to see Nirvana play that show, and that, they locked people out too because it was everyone wanted to see Nirvana mm. as well. But we got into the, the main show wow. as well as everything else. Hey, listen, I've, I've asked a few people this, but I still haven't met anyone. But were you at the big day out when Silverchair played on one of the outside stages? I think it was '94 or '6, maybe '96. And Silverchair played for the first time at Big Day Out and they had the skate set up on outside the main arena and they had a car there and, and it was when like Al Peterson, mm. I think it was like a consolidated tour or something, like Al Peterson, Karma, 
Billy Pepper. Billy Pepper. Billy Stepper, who, who, who wanted to fight everyone. Who got who got skating barred from the big day out? Oh, was it was, was it was it that big day out? No, no. But anyway, and Silverchair were playing. Everyone's skating, and some dude climbed one of those massive light poles, like wasted, because you know they said things were looser back there. Was able to climb up it, got to the top, and then hung off like a bar. We're talking, I don't know, heights, maybe like, what, 150 metres off the ground or 100 metres? No, is that too big? Yeah. 100 metres off 100 the ground. Like a, 100 a, feet, probably. 30 metres, probably. It was huge. Like, yeah. And then Silverchair stopped and the whole place just looked up and we're just like, <gasps> like the whole place stopped. And even Silverchair just had to stop and because security told him to stop. And then so they could get on the stage and go, dude, get down. You know, on the had to get on the microphone. Going to go up there. Yeah. Do you remember? Does anyone <laughs> else remember, remember that? that? If you were there and you remember that moment, please hit me up because that, to this day, was one of the most insane things I've ever seen. No, insane. I missed that. I wasn't. I wasn't big into silver chairs, so I wouldn't have like specifically. Well, either was I. I'd never, never, I'd never heard of them because it was the first time they'd ever played. But I was just. Yeah. There. I mean, big day outs for me back then would just. I just stay around the skate area the whole time, and if there was a band nearby, that's what you were like. I wasn't going to watch bands. I was there for the skating. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. For yeah. sure, for sure. I ended up doing the. Mull also talked about the '97 big day out tour with. With Mulhall and Luxford and crew and Tony Hawk was on that one and Mike yes. Frazier and that was that was definitely a highlight experience and yeah the Prodigy playing I remember them playing Breathe and it was just reverberating through the whole stadium and the heads were just going up and down in this big wave and I was just looking going wow this is a moment yeah. right here that, that was pretty special I felt very blessed to be chosen by Fox. John Bless Fox. John Fox for all that he's done within skateboarding and, and running all those things and um, helping with Bondi Skate Riders and some more stuff. But, um, yeah, he's done so much in skating and, and I was very grateful to him for uh, inviting me to do that tour yeah. with Tony and everyone. And, yeah, that was an, that was an amazing one. Yeah, Prodigy. <laughs> Tony Hawk demo with the Prodigy playing was just pretty we next just pinch, level. Pinching yourself. Pretty much. Did like, you develop absolutely. any sort of relationship with Tony, like mates? No. Nah, or was it always really just like? Like I, I, I do think he he recognises me when I see him. He's like, like he knows because I've been around skated with him in Encinitas. I've skated his ramp in the states yeah. previously, not with him at the time. Um, but I've been a lot of things. I was assistant tour manager with with Fox at the 2012, um, you know, Big Day Out tour when it got revived for a minute and Tony was doing that and I was helping everyone not necessarily with that crew but seen him at Bolarama and stuff so you know there's recognition there I'm pretty sure but it's mm. not like you know Tony how many people does Tony know a few he, yeah he's, he's been around he's, he's been pretty around popular a little bit <laughs> what about hey what, so why did Billy Pepper get Skateboarding barred from Big Day Out because he just cut loose. Apparently, what do you like? Try to fight people? Nah, just destroying hotels and ah, oh. all of that. Oh, stuff. so he was on the Big Day Out tour. Was it? Was yeah. it was he on an Element tour? Yeah, but it was you know combined, and so they did yeah. the Big Day Out stuff or whatever with it. So I just remember yeah. he did a tour, and just on that tour, like he was in all these fights, like he was fighting people all the time. I think there was that too. There was so then, many things, and then like people were nicknaming him, nicknaming him Billy Stepper. 
I didn't stepping hear up that to one. people. I didn't hear that one. <laughs> you know, like whatever. I'm not trying to like whatever. Just memories come flowing through me. No, I f- forgot all about that until you just said him then, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I heard that he was the one who got <laughs> skated. And I was like, we're off skaters now. Sucks. <laughs> pretty much. Anyway, listen, got to wrap it up, dude. So so good talking to you. And yeah, we might leave it there. Mr. Ty Colling, everybody. Thanks, Shan. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Good work. Keep it up. Thank you.